Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in the country of Uganda have done, and I hope that means that Kamala is now one of our listeners. And, of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. All right, folks, well, it has finally come down to this. After building up the rivalry between Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker for several months, we have now reached our final destination on the highway to hell, and it is... SummerSlam 1998. And because this is such a monumental pay-per-view, I had to bring in a special guest. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the second time, he is the host of the New Blood Rising Podcast, which is also available on the Questionable Endeavor Network, and he's a huge fan of the WWF's Summer of 1998. It is none other than Mr. William Rankin. And William, would you care to remind the Raw Attitude Podcast fans about the New Blood Rising podcast and why they should be listening to it? Well, God dang, of course. Let's talk about it. <laughs> so the New Blood Rising podcast, what are we? We're a timeline-based wrestling podcast. We are about to hit episode 100 in the next couple of episodes, but we've gone through, we're in our third season, season one. We looked at WCW. We jumped right in. We jumped in when it was cold and it was a nightmare. We jumped in with Vince Russo start, Vince Russo crossing over to WCW from there to the, to the bitter end, which is all kinds of zaniness, as you'll find if you listen to that at that season. Season two, and where we end with season one, it, natural, it was natural for us to segue into WWF with the invasion, with rest of that, that whole summer of 2001, and then wrapping all the way around to 2002 with... WrestleMania X8 being the end. And then season three, we went a completely different direction. We've been going through all of ECW's pay-per-views from barely legal all the way through into the WWF pay-per-views, the one-night stands, even <sighs> December to December. All of them there. <laughs> we're going through them all. That's what we're doing over there. And you are definitely a trooper for even covering December to December, I have to say. So even venturing into the WWECW pay-per-views as well. Yeah, it, Yikes. we're we're about to get there because we just wrapped up recording like the the as we call it, the ECW Prime series, which was really really cool. <laughs> Going through barely legal through guilty as charged at one, it's really a great ride. That was a lot of fun. So I, we're interested to see like what like we're going to be doing a lot of hitting the ground and looking at how things change between two thousand one and two thousand five, which. A lot does, and so it. You're right. Like it's it. There, there's some moments with that. Those one night stands that are really awesome, and then yeah, you get to December dismember, and you're like, this is. I think Martin said it best. He called it. It is perfect. It's a wet fart. Is exactly <laughs> what that show is. Oh, to say the least. Yeah, I remember December to dismember. I think it's 
like Bobby Lashley versus Big Show is like the final part of that big cage match, and the ECW fans are just like, "What? Why? Why are you doing this?" The why? worst part is like Sabu because like he was headed out like the next day, like that was his last night, I guess. Like he doesn't even make it to the main event. Like he's caught like sleeping in the back. They do yeah. some really dumb thing to write him off, and I think even Heyman is out halfway through the show. It's just something oh. really bad. Like I remember. It, and I, and of all places, you know, it's in Augusta, Georgia. So like, it's like right. <laughs> it's not far from where we, where I live now. But it was oh. like, man, they pulled this off in Augusta. Like they went to Augusta. They couldn't even get Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. They probably had like what, like five thousand fans at most. Well, it was I also think... like another thing that killed that show was that they ran like because they had that they, during that time period. Not unlike now, they had almost like five pay per views within the span of like eight weeks. Mm. Which was unreal between like Survivor Series and uh, New Year's Revolution. I, they may have still had one at that point. It was unreal how many shows they had, and so you really felt the fatigue that I think a lot of people are feeling now, especially coming off of like Money in the Bank, and then guess what? Here's Great Balls of Fire, and then oh, guess what? Now there's SummerSlam. All right, but man, I'm tired. Oh, Great Balls of Fire! Wow. I, I mean. I don't even know what's – when I heard that was the title of a WWE pay-per-view, I was just kind of blown away because it doesn't seem to make any sort of sense as a pay-per-view unless you're doing like a flaming testicles match, you know, which I assume they probably are not booking. Right, But I right. suppose there's still time. But yeah, just just really – that's probably the strangest name for a pay-per-view I've ever heard. But um, – oh, I want to actually add one other thing about ECW December to Dismember because I think, if I'm not mistaken, when Sabu gets taken out – isn't Hardcore Holly the one who replaces him in that match? He is. So, like, I remember, like, we're going to be talking about it. I know that show. It was one of those, like, sort of like when, remember number 30 at the 2014 Rumble? It was like, oh, it's going to be Daniel Bryan. It's Rey Mysterio. Right, right. It's one of those type of, like, oh, no, I was expecting this, and you gave me that. Which, in hindsight, like, and it's because like I just love Bob Holly. Like I, his book is so good, and he's been. I, I've gotten to interact with him in the past, and he's a really cool dude when it comes to interacting with fans. And I'll tell you, man, like it. He's he's gone a long way to kind of dispel whatever reputation he gathers a lot during the time period you're covering, Henry. No doubt mm-hmm. about it. Like as it's ramping up, his his hardcore run when it kicks up is so much fun. I know it's you're still about golly. In real time, like you're probably like a good year away from that, I bet. Oh yeah, yep. At this point, the last time we saw him on Raw, he was fighting in the brawl for all against Bart Gunn, and to his credit, he's the only person in the tournament who Bart Gunn did not knock out. So I guess he deserves a little bit of credit Dude, there on if, that one. In his book, he talks about it. He was a um, he used to do like bar fights, like legit bar fights. <laughs> like he used to do that stuff. Like whatever, whatever was kind of whatever you'd consider kind of tough man contest. Or actually, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's go back and take like t- whatever you think about no holds barred with the battle of the tough guys, quote unquote, <laughs> that they do in those. That's what I think of Bob Holly doing. Bob Holly just busting into the bathroom and saying, "What do we got here? A teeny wiener." <laughs> <laughs> that must have made the cutting room floor. I think they didn't put that final cut in there, but. Uh, <laughs> Classic cinema. So we're just gonna we're just gonna skip SummerSlam. We're gonna go straight to December to dismember. I think that's the like that's our plan for tonight. <laughs> uh, but yeah, actually, I, I wanted to sneak in another side plug too because I know your New Blood Rising co-host Jason Kiesler recently did a guest appearance on Tuning Japanese, another 
Questionable Endeavor Network show. Um, that, I think, just dropped today. I haven't gotten a chance to listen to it yet, but I definitely will. I would say if you're a fan of podcasts about Japanese anime, or even if you're not, because I know absolutely nothing about Japanese anime, but I still enjoy the show, uh, definitely be sure to listen to Tuning Japanese as well. T-O-O-N-I-N-G, as in cartoon, Tuning Japanese. Definitely give that a lesson, too, for uh, for you New Blood Rising fans. So, uh, yeah, have you gotten a chance to listen to that one yet? No, but I, because you're right, it just dropped, like, literally yesterday. And with Father's Day and all this stuff, like, you know, it's been, it, it was... It, it was enough just to get the podcast up and published yesterday, right. but but um, I have no doubt Jason kills it down there because I know he knows his stuff when it comes to anime. There's so many things like over the years, whether it's been cartoon based. I remember when he and I used to rap about Transformers, Transformers <laughs> Prime. That that when they read when they when they did that new cartoon of it or whatever, and we used to talk about that. And he's well versed, man. He's well versed in the Jedi arts. Excellent. I look forward to listening to it. I mean, as of when we're taping this, it just dropped, yeah, like earlier today or, or yesterday. But we'll definitely, by the time this episode goes up, we both will have listened to it for sure. So I hope you, the listeners, do as well. And so, with that being said, are you ready to hitchhike down the highway to hell? <laughs> hitchhike it. <laughs> it gives it that sort of old school feel, you know, I, I feel like. <laughs> So let's do it. Well, actually, before we dive into SummerSlam, there was an episode of Sunday Night Heat to cover as well. The very first live episode of Heat, in fact. So, fun moment for you conspiracy buffs out there. During this episode of Heat, they actually put up a flaming CGI graphic of an actual highway to hell making its way to New York City, sending the Statue of Liberty into the ocean, destroying the Empire State Building, and knocking over the Twin Towers. I'm just saying... We may need Jesse Ventura to interrogate Vince McMahon. It's a reasonable request. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so, anywho, here are the Sunday Night Heat results. I didn't ask you to watch any of this because, number one, it's not on the network, and number two, it's not really on YouTube either. Oh, dude, I sent you this clip, though. This was fun to kind of look at. You did. The, the tail end of this episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you did send me one. So, Animal and Draws were supposed to face too much, but old Drunk Hawk came to the ring and told Draws to head backstage. Hawk was so shit-faced that he actually left his motorcycle helmet on for the entire match. Also, one amusing part of this was the fact that Shawn Michaels was on commentary speculating as to what Hawk's issues were, but let's just say that around this time, I think HBK knows exactly what Hawk was going through. So the match ended when Animal put Scott Taylor on his shoulders for the Doomsday device, but when Hawk climbed to the top rope, he faced the wrong direction as though he was in position for a moonsault. Hawk then fell off the turnbuckle and collided with Animal, and that allowed Scotty to pin him for the three count. And allow me to just repeat that. In the very first match on the card, the team of Too Much beat the Legion of Doom in Madison Square Garden. That'll really get the fans amped up, won't it? Oy, this drunk Hawk angle, man, I tell you. It's, it's bad. It's so bad. And... I'm just waiting for the moment. The moment. Oh. Um, that's the one I'm waiting for. I the, won't yeah. say any more, but you know what I'm talking about. The I do. <laughs> and the sad part is, I think that moment is still about two months away I know. on the it's timeline. Not, you're right. It's not even close. And I no. knew that just by how Draws was carrying himself. Because that's right. all part of it. When you notice Draws trying to, starting to be a little more confident in what he's doing, you know something's up. But we're not even close to that. 
No. Vince Russo definitely tends to stick with these ideas for a while. Like uh, the Brawl for All was about two months. The Kai and Tai Val Venus feud was about two months. Even when things are bad ideas, he does tend to stick it out with them. So, yeah, he's he's not a quitter when it comes to this drunk hawk angle. <laughs> that, that's for certain to all of our, our detriments. So after that, Sable came out and cut a promo where she refused to tell us who her mystery partner will be. So as a reminder, it will be Mark Merrow and Jacqueline taking on Sable and somebody. She has also specified that her partner will not be one of her pals in the oddities because, well, fuck those guys. The next match was Gangrel versus Dustin Runnels, and Gangrel was able to score the victory with the Impaler DDT in only about two and a half minutes. Because it's the Attitude Era, the demon from hell will always triumph over the man from man of God. Next up, Jeff Jarrett and Southern Justice. Now, this is traumatic. They attacked Howard Finkel, and Double J shaved the Fink's head and mustache. Now, see, that's, that's going too far in my book. Finkel's mustache is a goddamn American treasure. You really crossed the line there, Jarrett. Really I, crossed it. I don't think it comes back. I don't think it ever comes back, really. Like, I think you're right, yeah. I think it stays just, I mean, at most, it's kind of the stubble you'll see for forevermore. I'm pretty sure, unless, like, he snuck it in there one other time, some November, some no-shave November, he just let loose. But I'm I'm pretty sure, because uh, I was remember I was thinking about Legend's House distinctly, and I was like, yeah, I don't think Fink ever brings it back. Even when oh. he came back, when uh, remember when CM Punk brought yes. him out? And yep. I, I don't think he did. So this is a milestone, the end of an era. Yeah. I think that was um, Survivor Series 2011 where Punk won the title and then went on the, the massive long title reign there. That's right. So he has, he has Finkel to thank for it. A mustacheless Finkel, apparently. And so in the final Sunday Night Heat match, the Disciples of Apocalypse faced Vader and Bradshaw. And I would love to know why Bradshaw is teaming with anyone when we've been told over the past month that he pretty much hates everybody. I guess maybe that left hand from Bart Gunn caused him to forget his gimmick. I don't know. So anyway, Vader and Bradshaw miscommunicated with each other, which allowed 8-Ball to roll up Vader for the three count. Yes, that's right. This pre-show has seen Scott Taylor pin Animal and 8-Ball pin Vader. Great start to the show. And then after the match, Vader and Bradshaw fought with each other, and I only wish that this feud would lead to one final brawl-for-all fight between the two of them, but alas, not in the cards. We then got another random brawl between DX and the Nation of Domination, presumably as a result of The Rock almost committing sexual assault on China on the previous episode of Raw. And by the way, if you want to feel uncomfortable, go back and listen to the previous episode of this podcast, because that segment is icky. But anyway, during this brawl, The Rock whacked Triple H in the knee with the Intercontinental title, so they're playing it up as though Hunter is injured going into tonight's ladder match, and he may not be able to successfully climb to the top rung. And then to close out the show, Stone Cold Steve Austin ripped off Triple H's gimmick a year in advance when he grabbed a sledgehammer and smashed the shit out of The Undertaker's hearse backstage as the commentators speculated as to whether or not anyone was inside. And yes, William, as you mentioned, you did send me a clip of this on Twitter, uh, and I was actually just amazed that they actually did an angle on Sunday Night Heat that was very noteworthy. So I guess this makes sense. It was right before SummerSlam. Well, this is where you're starting to see this is where Sunday Night Heat's utility comes into play. Sunday Night Heat was completely designed to be able to be able to sell, be able to get people to buy pay-per-views at the last minute. I mean, that's exactly what they did. They were like, yep. let's take the pre let's just take the pre-show and make it mean just a hair bit more. And 
this bit was awesome. Like, it was so much fun to watch this. Yes, it was. He incorporated a forklift as well. <laughs> Good I don't stuff. think it works. He doesn't, like, one thing yeah. that's great is, like, Austin is so committed to, like, he'll, he'll try anything. But you can tell quickly when something's not working, he'll abandon it. Like, oh, nah, yeah. I got to try something else. Yep. Yeah, and actually, this is going to mark about a, a month or so, month, month and a half, where Austin goes on to destroy a lot of property on television. So yep. definitely stay tuned for that because there's there's quite a few things, that, quite a few vehicles he's going to incorporate. But uh, I won't get too far into that. But if, you, if you're a fan of the Attitude Era, you probably know what I'm talking about. But we'll, we'll get around to it pretty soon. And so that was Sunday Night Heat. So what do you think, William? Are you now in the proper frame of mind to cover the pay-per-view? Absolutely. Fantastic. Well then, let's get into it. After all those lies, finally, we get to the truth. There's no more conspiracy. It is fact. Undertaker and Kane combined make the most awesome, the most destructive force in the history of the World Wrestling Federation. I knew all alone that you two were together. Kane and the Undertaker together are an unbeatable force. At SummerSlam, I will take what is rightfully mine. I'm going to burn your ass. And that's the bottom line. The Stone Cold said so. How in the hell does one man, even a Steve Austin, turn back the talents of these two monsters? Before this night ends, you will come face to face with your destiny. With Kane at your side, you will be the World Wrestling Federation champion once again at SummerSlam. So it is Sunday, August 30th, 1998, and we are live from the WWE's favorite arena, Madison Square Garden in New York City, in front of a sold-out crowd of 21,588 fans. We open the show with a video package recapping the rivalry between WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker over the past few months, including last week's revelation that The Undertaker and his brother Kane are now officially united. As soon as the package ends, we immediately go straight into the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd, and if you're watching on the WWE Network, you'll hear generic rock music playing in the background, which I assume was actually ACDC's Highway to Hell on the initial broadcast. Some of the entertaining signs tonight include Vince Fears Talent, You Paid $29.95 to See My Sign, I Want to Farouk Sable, I hope Stone Cold dies, and <laughs> Valboski plant your seed in the Big Apple. So, William, did you notice any more uh, quality signs on this night? Uh, I... <laughs> no, but I... I'm sorry the Austin one really got me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was surprised about that one, too. I was like, really? Wow, somebody is really anti-Stone Cold in the Attitude Era. Okay. <laughs> All right, go ahead, man. I'm sorry. Very, very succ- oh, no, quite all right. That's a very succinct sign. Just no BS. I hope Stone Cold dies. There you go. And, of course, he is up against The Undertaker, so I suppose He probably brought that sign to a screening of Stone Cold with Brian Bosworth hoping the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the boss. 
So actually, another question for you right off the bat. How do you feel about the SummerSlam 1998 arena setup? And I ask this because unlike most WWF shows where the ramp is set up to the left side of the camera, in this case, the ramp is fully in view the entire time because it's right behind the ring, and it's kind of made to look like the gates of hell with a red illumination behind it, as though everyone who enters from backstage is emerging from Hades itself. So were you a fan of this, yeah, uh, this it, setup? It was fine. I mean, the garden, this is pretty much your standard Madison Square Garden setup. Like any show mm-hmm. from the garden, this is pretty much how it's going to be. They always have the hard cam pointed right at the entranceway. If you watch WrestleMania 20, I believe it's the same as well among other shows. Yep. Uh, Royal the, Rumble 2000. Yep. Oh, definitely. And then what was the the one wherever Cena came back? I always remember that one. The, remember yeah. the, the surprise return to Cena, that one, 08 or something like that maybe? I forget. Yep. But, I think um, that's right, yep. But uh, yeah, I... I always loved the garden setup, the staging for it. Like I'll be honest, like it was something I always like. Kind of, I didn't take much notice of when I first saw this as a kid. This was Charlie and I talked about. This was one of the first pay per views like I actually ordered legit, like ordered it to watch it and everything. And back then, like I didn't take into account. Like I remember the gate swinging because there's something later on where I think Kane politely like closes the gate. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's like it's that's got to be Kane, but he's actually polite, and you know. But as opposed to ripping the doors open, he politely shuts them as well. Apparently, so right. But it's I thought it was all right, man. It wasn't bad. It was fairly non-offensive, you know. I mean, definitely by like I think because I was thinking like I loved the over the edge '98 setup with the cars. I thought right. that was I thought that one was awesome, but they really. They they pick their spots and you can tell they're still like trying they're they're still kind of keeping budget stuff you know kind of contained next year I think in '99 you're going to see it kind of expand a little bit more and then of course from there on out it gets bigger and bigger but I thought it was pretty cool did you like it I did yeah it actually gives it for for those Madison Square Garden shows it definitely gives the shows that sort of unique feel. And I had mentioned Royal Rumble 2000. It's that same sort of thing where they have the car, if you remember, coming. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's coming through there. And this one is basically showing as the gates of hell because it's the highway to hell. So, yeah, I, I did enjoy it, actually. I just have a couple of quick notes as we go through this. The the one unfortunate part of it is it kind of tips off a few run-ins. But um, yeah. but we can but we can get into that in a little bit. But overall, I did actually like the, the highway to hell setup. So thumbs up. Thumbs up for the MSG shows with the ramp behind the ring. So our opening contest is a European title match, champion D'Lo Brown versus challenger Val Venus. So William, as you may recall, Val had been involved in a two-month rivalry with, with Kai and Tai and Mr. Yamaguchi-san, but instead of blowing off that feud in a pay-per-view match, Val is facing D'Lo, who he has absolutely zero history with, and in fact, neither of these guys' paths have even crossed at all prior to this event. So I guess what I'm saying is, this match makes a lot of sense. Right, exactly. But, you know, at the same time, like, this is how opening opening matches, sometimes it's this is what you get on the low the lower end of the card. You know, you're going to get maybe a couple guys, like we're used to this with ECW shows, guys who really don't have much of a beef going on, but they've got a match going on. The cool thing, though, like as a kid, was like, Val's got a title match, and that meant a lot because yes. his heat, like, the way he was building, like, they did the, the one thing they did brilliantly was let him go face. Letting him go face was such a good idea because, wow, is the crowd behind him. Yes. Yeah, and actually, I I had not watched SummerSlam 1998 since I ordered it on, or I guess my parents ordered it on pay-per-view for me back in 1998. So going into this show, I was like, 
does does Val win the European title? I actually I didn't remember this match happening essentially. So I was like, I think Val maybe he wins. I don't know. So uh, just going in, I kind of had that same sort of feel that I had initially in 1998 because a lot of these matches I didn't necessarily know who was going to win. In this being one of them, so. I guess I shouldn't say a lot of them because I knew who was going to win the main event and the ladder match and obviously hair versus hair. But um, yeah, this was one where it was just kind of a nice surprise where I was like, oh, all right, very good. So yeah, good times. And so in case you're wondering about Val's pre-match promo, uh, well, he came, he saw, and then he came again. And frankly, I think that that sign in the crowd with Val planting his seed in the Big Apple, I think that was actually a better innuendo than the one Val did on this night. He kind of mailed that one in a little bit. And as for D'Lo, he's billed as being originally from Chicago, Illinois, now hailing from Helsinki, Finland, which I thought was great. You got to love D'Lo's full embrace of the European title. JR, though, just keeps saying he's from Jersey. Like, yeah, I, why is that? I don't know. Like, he keeps, <laughs> he just completely ignores he was originally from Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> I, maybe he is. I don't know. I always thought he was from Chicago, but but if he's actually from Jersey, I, I, I have no idea. <laughs> so also, as soon as the bell rings, we immediately get a D'Lo sucks chant. So it's clear that he's quite over with the MSG crowd. And if you flash back just a few months ago, it would have been unthinkable for D'Lo to be getting any sort of heat because he was nothing more than a complete afterthought in the nation of domination but to his credit he took the chest protector gimmick and ran with it and he's gotten over very quickly as a result so good stuff there really good stuff and speaking of that chest protector early on in the match Val hit D'Lo in the chest with a forearm but D'Lo shrugged it off and Val actually sold that it hurt him so that was another nice little touch there Shortly thereafter, we see that Edge was actually looking on in the crowd. One month ago on Raw, Edge actually jumped D'Lo on the ramp after one of his matches, and then, well, they haven't followed up on it at all since then. So if you want to describe Vince Russo's booking, you likely would not use the word consistency. So later on in the match, William, did you notice D'Lo lifting Val up for a powerbomb, but not being able to get enough rotation and dropping Val right on his head? Uh, this was scary because only a year ago was when Austin took uh, the pile driver from Owen. Yeah, and, and actually, what I was going to say, what I was thinking of was about one year from now when D'Lo and it has the match with Draws, and that's the exact that's same true. scenario. Yeah, yeah, and also remember, like this is the one like we talked about, um, Hardcore Holly, like. This is the same exact almost thing that Lesnar does to him. Right. And that breaks his neck. And I'm, man, I I forgot about this uh, from when I was a kid, but Val is really, really lucky. Yeah, that was scary. Very scary. I will say, though, I mean, Hardcore Holly getting dropped on his neck, it did lead to him main eventing Royal Rumble 2004 against Lesnar. So I think he might take that trade off in retrospect. I don't know. (laughs) Right. He probably would. (laughs) Yeah. But overall, though, I will say I really enjoyed the uh, the D'Lo Val Venus match, except for the goofy finish. So eventually, Val took off D'Lo's chest protector and put it on for himself. He then climbed to the top rope, but referee Jimmy Corderas attempted to make him climb down because uh, I guess Corderas only wanted D'Lo to wear the chest protector. I mean, logically, if D'Lo's allowed to wear it, why wouldn't Val also be allowed to wear it? So Corderas tried to prevent Val from coming off the top rope. And then he accidentally crotched Val on the turnbuckle instead. Angry about this, and justifiably so, Val shoved Corderas across the ring, and that was enough to cause the disqualification after 15 minutes 
and 31 seconds. And that's right, two mid-carders went for more than 15 minutes, and it was damn good. Your winner, and still European champion, D'Lo Brown. And after the match, Val took out his frustrations on Corderas by slamming him to the canvas, going to the top rope, and nailing him with the money shot. He then stood over Corderas and did his usual gyrating of his package because, in the Attitude Era, the guy who beats up the ref and wiggles his dick in his face is the good guy. So, William, what did you think of our opening SummerSlam match? And more importantly, will you be rating every match on a 1 to 10 scale like you do on the new Blood Rising podcast? Well, it's a good question. So, um, first off, the match itself. Thinking, I remember when I saw this as a kid, I hated this ending. Yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, that, like it made it even even in '98, which at that point I would have been uh, I would have been 15 watching. I would have been I was like that makes no sense why the referee did that. And it and I'll be honest, like I, I for, for a while I, I used to think like it was an accident. I, oh, yeah. I did for whatever reason, like I thought that. But then like I got older and did more of these and whatever. But watching it this time, I I was like okay, there was no way they were taking the belt off D'Lo, but they knew they couldn't have Val lose clean. They needed. Right. They had to do something goofy, and this, I guess, apparently was the best idea they could come up with. Which I was like, why don't you? I mean, just do a count out or do something like that. Like you don't have to do something this stupid, but whatever. I, I don't know. I overall though, like in terms of a match, in terms of like showcasing like middle your your mid card talent, it does a good job of that. Like I think yeah. it go, I think it goes on too long. Like fifteen minutes to start off with is a little heavy for for this type of match because. The thing, the thing is nowadays, man. Like what we're accustomed to is when you start a pay per view, it's got to come out hot. I mean, real hot, because you got to you you you're the guys you're kind of spinning the crowd up. And uh, the thing is, you got two guys here that really aren't going to fly around a lot, with the exception of their finishers. That's really about it. So I, I did think overall, though, it was a, it was a it was a good match. I, the scary moment with the, the power bomb. Uh, I'm glad that turned out, you know, to be, uh, you know, not an injury for Val. One thing I think that you can tell that they're cluing in onto this is D'Lo actually flips the crowd for like a moment in this match. Yes. And it's really, yes, really does. cool. And his fall, he's destined for so many good things. We'll get to more of that on Raw. But um, I thought overall that was a pretty good match. If, if, I, if I was to rate this one like I would the other ones, I'd give this one a solid six. Fair. Yeah, I would probably be in that same range as well. Um, I might be easily easy to impress, I should say, but like when I saw this match, I was like, "Wow, okay, we're at eight minutes, nine, ten. When they kept going, I was like, "Wow, this is actually pretty impressive because Val and Delo on Raw, they never really get a chance as mid carters to have a lengthy match like this. So as it kept going, I was like, "Oh, good for these guys, yeah, pretty good that they're going this long. So yeah, I, I thought it was really entertaining. In terms of Delo flipping the crowd, I think it comes a little bit after he he gets in the sky high power bomb, yeah. which if you listen to him, to the reaction he gets when he does that move on Raw in the weeks leading up to this, on the occasions when he busts that out, you can actually hear the crowd quite frequently go, ooh, like one of those, because it's, it is a very impressive looking move that he can just kind of hit that out of nowhere, and it looks really, really great. So, yeah, and again, the fact that D'Lo is actually getting himself over. <laughs> I like, wish we it, got some vines of D'Lo Brown hitting the sky high out of nowhere and then doing the head, the head jiggle yeah, and yes. then running off. <laughs> Sky high out of nowhere. In, come on, internet, get on that. Get on that. But yeah, and again, like, you know, Gila's uh, uh, been on the roster now like a year and a half at this point, and he was basically just that background guy in the Nation of Domination. So 
I'm glad he's come this far because I, I know he was one of Vince Russo's boys, but I, I always liked D'Lo, you know, so my personal opinion. I, I was always a fan of this him. Run, like, this run. The head wiggle and all that. This run, this European title run is an underrated title run in terms of this era. Like, it's actually a really good run that he has and only gets amplified by who they pair him with coming mm-hmm. up in the fall. But it's a really good run. Like, it's really impressive how long he runs with this bell. Yep, absolutely. And just everything about Dilo, the, the sort of embrace of the European title where he's from Helsinki and then one week he's from Paris or something to that extent. And continuing with the chest protector gimmick and the head wiggle, it didn't take him long to come up with very distinct mannerisms to set him apart from other people. And the crowd really has responded to it as well because he's not just, you know, background nation of domination guy number five. Now he's actually his own character. So, yeah, right on, D'Lo. So we then cut backstage where Michael Cole is standing by next to the hearse that Stone Cold destroyed on Sunday Night Heat. Mankind is with Cole, and he says that it was actually he who brought the hearse to the arena with the intent of putting Kane inside of it. Mankind says that the silver lining will be that he might get to use the sledgehammer that Austin left behind. So there's a nice feel-good story. We then go back to the arena for our next match, a four-on-three handicap match with Kai and Tai facing the oddities. If you're watching on the WWE Network, they actually edit out the Insane Clown Posse doing a live performance of the Oddities theme song, which is too bad because it means that you miss great lyrics like these. Come on, New York! Hands like this! 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 Come on! Hands like this! 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 I get the sense that a lot of viewers probably use their hands to reach for the mute button at that point, but that's neither here nor there. However, to balance out that shittiness, I will also play a clip of an amusing story that ICP told about this very night when they were on Chris Jericho's podcast a few years ago. You know, this is really why people didn't like us, because we needed a mirror for our paint. Uh-huh. So, like, they'd always give us our own dressing oh, room. right. And you yeah. know how that is. Yeah. Like, oh, the big shots got their yeah. own dressing yeah. You don't want to dress with the boys, you yeah, know? Exactly. And the first, the first day we, the, our very first day at SummerSlam, we needed a mirror, right? So they put us in a, in a dressing room with Steve Austin and Undertaker going over the, the finish. It was us two <laughs> painting up. And right behind us on, <laughs> on a bench is Undertaker and Austin going we're over going the, over match. the highway right. to hell famous main event yeah. match between the two of them and we're sitting in there painting up like oh sorry. Did, you know? did they look at you at all or no, what were we doing this. <laughs> okay so anyway back to the match now for the record the official participants for kai and tai are takamichinoku funaki togo and teo and on the oddities side we had kurgan golga and giant silva And if you ever needed proof that the Attitude Era was not exactly known for its work rate, I give you the team of Kurgan, Golga, and Giant Silva. So the match began with a really bizarre spot where Golga incapacitated all of the Kai and Tai members with headbutts, and he then proceeded to steal one of Yamaguchi-san's shoes. He poured some water into it as though he was about to drink from the shoe, but then Yamaguchi ran into the ring and Golga splashed him with the water instead. I have no idea what the point of that was, but it did happen. Jerry Lawler then interjects his usual classy commentary by saying he's glad that the oddities are no longer associated with, quote, those baby-stealing gypsies. What a strangely specific reference that is. I'm starting to think the king may have been the inspiration for Borat. And speaking of commentary, Jim Ross then says, quote, 
well, we never advertised this to be a classic, and JR always comes up with the most diplomatic ways of saying this match sucks, doesn't he? <laughs> I wrote that line verbatim that you put just said. Yep. Never advertised it to be a classic. So after a bunch of four-on-one quadruple teaming by Kai and Tai, which referee Jack Doan completely allows for some reason, the match finally ends when Kurgan and Giant Silva each hit two Kai and Tai members with choke slams, and then Golga pinned all four of them at the same time for the three count, so say goodbye to that stable being a credible threat. The WWE Network then immediately cuts away as soon as the pinfall is registered so they don't have to pay ICP any royalties. Fun fact, on the initial broadcast, while the oddities are celebrating their victory, we get a shot in the crowd of New Jersey Nets player Jason Williams clapping along. Four years from now, Williams will end up accidentally shooting and killing the driver of his limousine while he was playing with a shotgun. And after watching that oddities Kai and Tai match, I think I actually envy that limo driver. So, William, what were your thoughts on this one? It's fun, man. Like, if nothing else, like, this match does exactly what it's supposed to be. And it's... like the first match was 15 minutes. This is nowhere near that, and it's, that's exactly the way it should be. They kept this short. They had some fun with it, you know. Like it, it was one thing that's been fun with the oddity shift is it, it's given Kurgan a hair bit more personality, which has been fun because let's face it, the way he was going before Kane eclipsed him the second he stood out onto the ramp right. at, at, at that Hell in a Cell pay per view. You know, like he had no chance. Doing this at least gives him a little bit of something to do. Now with Kai and Tai, we did we had one pay per view in our run where we got to see three of those guys. I think it was Funaki, Togo, and Taka work together, and they are amazing working together. And yes. and the I love the bit where they get a one up on, um, or they try to get a one up or a four up, I guess I, I should say on on Golga. The way they keep throwing everything at him, they do like four splashes. I think on him at right. one point, and it's really fun to watch. But um, you know, man, like this match is purely just spectacle. It's a hundred percent, a hundred percent spectacle. As a kid with the with the, the clown posse doing their thing, like this was such a good time. This was well placed on the card. This was perfect to follow up the last match. That being said, like I give it only like a five out of ten. That's five purely on entertainment. There's nothing else. Because, like, let's yep. face it, like, there are plenty of uh, insulting uh, jingoisms that are in here without, <laughs> without question. But, like, it's, it, you know, like, when you just, again, it's pro wrestling. It is what it is. This, we're going to see this kind of thing. Like, it's fun. It's a fun little bout. So that's kind of where I stand on it. Yeah, I think I was just a little bitter somewhat at the ending how all four members of Kai and Tai are, are literally pinned at the same time by one guy. I guess I'm just a little bitter about it because at this point, Taka Michinoku is still the light heavyweight champion. And now, since he's joined Kai and Tai, he basically becomes you know just another guy um, who ends up getting pinned by one dude. And I thought that was kind of strange because uh, Michinoku, I think it was two weeks ago on Raw, he actually gives Val Venus his first loss on, uh, on WWF television. He ends Val Venus's undefeated streak. Granted, it's in you know, a gauntlet match, but Taka pins Val. So at that point, you would think he, they might have a little bit of momentum going with the stable, but then it's just kind of like, eh, no, they they just lost, and Golga pinned them all at the same time. But on the note of Kurgan, at this point, he actually is still undefeated. I don't know when he debuted. It was probably late 97, I think. I think but so. he still has yeah. not... Yeah, he still hasn't been pinned at this point. So he was the unstoppable monster for 
however long that was, and now he's the goofy, fun-loving guy. And you know, yeah, he's still undefeated. The Silva stuff, like they were really trying to push the Andre stuff hard because I, I'm, uh, I'm sure with it being the Garden, like you know, they thought that would get some play, like that would get a little bit more of some juice from the crowd and everything. But you know, it's it's like I said, man, it's it it's fine. I mean, like the thing is, like the one thing they did perfectly was with South Park being out there and how they tapped into that with Golga. Perfect. Like they really like is is out of touch as they are sometimes. Like occasionally they just fall ass backwards into something that I mean, Jr. says it. This wasn't advertised to be a classic. Nothing the oddities do is advertised to be a classic. But for the most part, it's a pretty good time to watch him. Well, when you say the WWE being out of touch, are you referring to calling a pay-per-view Great Balls of Fire <laughs> 60 years after that song came Come out? Come on, this, this one's for the kids. The kids are into this stuff now, pal. Yeah. The kids love Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, my God. Still, I'm still in disbelief about that pay-per-view. But anyway, so our next match is the hair versus hair match. Jeff Jarrett versus X-Pac, and as you could probably guess, the stipulation of this match is that the loser will have his hair cut off. So Jarrett was initially accompanied by Southern Justice, but Commissioner Slaughter came out before the match began and told him that they had to go backstage. However, X-Pac was accompanied by the newly bald and mustacheless Howard Finkel, and Sarge was completely fine with Howard sticking around for some reason, so way to play favorites there, Commish. So one thing which really jumped out at me in the very beginning here is that early on you could hear the crowd get a loud Let's Go X-Pac chant going, which is certainly quite the contrast from how fans will end up viewing him in later years when the term X-Pac heat becomes part of the wrestling lexicon. But at this point in 1998, perhaps because DX is just so over, the crowd loves the guy. Go figure. I guess we'll see how long that lasts. Another fun thing I couldn't help but notice, at some point toward the middle of the match, I'm not sure how this happened, but Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler have their commentary projected over the PA system in Madison Square Garden, much to their confusion. Did you notice when that happened? I did. And I've heard this happen before, like during wrestling shows. And I've always just thought it was just one of those kind of funny things that happens. Because, you know, like at some point, they'll oh, wait, wait a second. I, I don't know if I'm comfortable. I, hey, folks, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm comfortable hearing me in the crowd there. Hmm. Yeah. Why, why am I hearing my own voice? But, uh, yeah, actually, I'll play that clip of it right here as well because it's really – Really kind of bizarre. I, I expect better from MSG here. That spinning heel kick, and nobody in the game does it any better than X-Pac. Except then. Double J's a very intelligent young man. And certainly had that move very well scouted. So anyway, toward the end of the match, we saw one disadvantage of having the ramp directly behind the ring. You could clearly see Southern Justice standing by the entrance, waiting for their cue to interfere. Sure enough, after X-Pac hit Jarrett with an X-Factor and went for the pin, Mark Canterbury and Dennis Knight ran to the ring. With Canterbury distracting referee Mike Chioda, Knight swung a guitar at Pac, but he ducked and knocked Knight off the apron. Pac then took the guitar and clobbered Jarrett with it behind the ref's back. When Kyoto turned back around, he made the count, despite the fact that there was clearly guitar debris all over the canvas, and X-Pac defeated Double J to win the hair versus hair match. As soon as the match ended, the New Age Outlaws ran out from backstage with chairs to chase away Southern Justice. They were also soon joined by Darren Drozdov and the Headbangers, for some reason. I understand why Droz was out there since Jarrett cut his hair on Raw a few weeks ago, but I'm not sure why the Headbangers give a shit, because they're bald. But anyway, Draws and the Headbangers prop Double J up into a chair and hold his arms back 
and that allows X-Pac to pull out an electric razor and cut Jarrett's hair. For you profanity connoisseurs out there, we also get two S-bombs at this point because Jarrett yells at Mike Kyoto that he is, quote, awful as shit, and then when his electric razor apparently dies, X-Pac can be heard yelling, this piece of shit! So Pac then switches, <laughs> Pac then switches to standard scissors and proceeds to cut Jarrett's hair with those instead, but by the time he's finished, Double J actually still has plenty of hair left. I'm thinking somebody probably should have brought a backup electric razor so they could have actually gotten rid of his hair. But anyway, William, what did you think of this match and Jeff Jarrett getting his flowing blonde locks trimmed? This is a good match. This is a good match. You got two Agreed. really good workers. Two classic, like new generation WWF workers going at it. And um, I, one thing I had to... I, I always remember this... Because this is this becomes the trend with Jeff Jarrett going forward. This is one of the first and last times you're going to see that piss is not censored on his guitar. Right. For whatever yes. reason, that becomes a sticking point in both WWF and WCW going forward, where it's like, well, Jeff, I'm not sure we can do that. Yeah. I guess Jim got to put an that. asterisk. In yeah, the I know. It doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. But um, I, I don't either. But uh, I, I agree with you. To, like the. I was trying to remember back to the times. I remember there's Adrian Adonis, WrestleMania three, and obviously Vince at the Trump Mania and stuff like that, thinking about mm-hmm. when they've done these hair versus hairs. And, and I'm always like, they, they don't always go so smooth, it seems like. It right. seems like it takes a little bit for it to get going because, obviously, you can't do a lot of like rehearsal with this because, you know, it's hair. Like, I mean, you're not, <laughs> it, 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 there's a drawback to doing that. But, um, at the same time, it's always like, dude, like, do these guys, could they at least talk to somebody who'd be like, this is how you do it. If you're going to do this, like, if you're going to be doing something that's going to take a few seconds, like, like at least just consult somebody who knows what they're doing versus just like, because when he was taking, like, even watching with the shears, he's just, he, he's not even, like, getting down in there, you know? Right. So, I mean, granted, they crap out anyway, and you're right, dude, when he, <laughs> I laughed, I laughed so hard when I heard him say, this piece of shit doesn't work. Yeah. But one uh, of the <laughs> one of the counter examples of that, I think it's um, I think it's in TNA where it's Raven, I believe, who loses a hair versus hair match, and they start, you know, they have the electric razor and they're you know shearing off his hair. But I don't know if they're just getting it too. I guess they're obviously getting it too close because when they start shearing off Raven's hair, there's just blood pouring oh. down his face. Yeah, so so look up that one if you get, well, get like, a chance. Because yeah. the other thing, too, with these hair versus hair matches, it's usually like the guy... Like, here's another one I just remembered. Kevin Nash and Chris Jericho, I think in 04. Or 03. Mm. 03, I think it was. This was right before Nash would go off to film The Punisher. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think he lost with the intention, like, all right, so this will be how he loses his hair. But, of course, it's like, when I think of a hair versus hair match, and I'm sure, like, guys who... You know, have grown up like down in the territories, like pre nineteen eighty. Like, if you ever did something like this, like, yeah, I mean, you shaved that man, you shaved him. You didn't just give him like, oh, we'll just give him kind of a crew cut or whatever. Like, nah, man, right. ball, that's it, done. Yep. So it, it and of course, the next night on Raw, when you look at it, it's like I, I think it's a great improvement when we see the new Jeff Jarrett. That's we're kind of yes. getting into the the mayhem Jeff Jarrett as we used to call him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, the old WCW mayhem, Jeff Jarrett. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Also, I forget. Uh, I think it's Edge who beats Kurt Angle in the hair versus hair match. Right. That's I, another one. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think they, they do a good job shaving him that night, if I'm not mistaken, but I don't really recall. Well, and of course with this one, they, they will have that backstage clip that we'll see at one point where you can right. see they're getting into it a little bit more. Yep, good stuff. So yeah, he, at this point, he still has plenty of hair left, but once we get around to Raw, we'll, we'll see what's up. So up next, Michael Cole was standing by with The Rock backstage. Cole asked him for his thoughts, and The Rock said that he was thinking of slapping the yellow off Cole's teeth for asking stupid questions, which drew a noticeable amount of laughter from the MSG crowd, and rightfully so, because that was a pretty funny line. He's guaranteeing a victory in the ladder match tonight, if you smell what The Rock is cooking. Pure gold from Rocky, in my opinion. Did you enjoy this promo, William? They're getting there, like, every show... He's becoming, he's, he is becoming the rock as we know him just a little oh, yes. bit more. And it's, you can tell like this whole night, like the rock clearly has given you like the blueprint, like this is what we can do with this guy. And it's not just keeping him in a stable, like a mid card stable that's meandering around the icy title. He's destined for bigger things. Yes. Yeah. And it's actually f- been fun watching him since the start of this podcast because I started this podcast, it was December of 97 was the first episode of Raw that I covered, and The Rock was on there kind of doing this hokey thing that he did for a while, where it was like, well, the people want to know how The Rock feels about Medicaid and all this sort of thing, and it's like, what? What the hell? And now, as the months have gone on, you see him become, you know, the the catchphrase catchphrase machine that he ends up becoming, and just having the crowd in the palm of his hand. Remember one thing I was reading about, like, when he, he talked about feuding with Triple H, and like, he would get so frustrated because... He was a guy who was addicted. He was he, he stuck to the script. He stuck mm-hmm. to the script, and then finally, like I don't know if it was Brian Gewertz or whatever that told him was like because he was get frustrated that Triple H would just go off and do whatever, and it would kind of leave the Rock hesitant to oh oh god he went off the script what do I do and it's like but he finally got he finally got through his head well not finally it was pretty quick obviously but when he got it through his head it was like you know man I gotta. I'm going to have to do my own thing here. I'm going to have to kind of feel this out and flow with the character the way I'm kind of feeling it. And that's what we're starting to see. And it's a damn thing of beauty. So then we go back to the arena for our next match, two-on-two transgender, pardon me, intergender action with Mark Merrow and Jacqueline taking on Sable and a mystery partner. It's Locke Bresner. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that'd be fitting couple of years too early. You probably, imagine if that's still in college at this point. If that theme hit in like in like 2006 or 17 Lesnar comes out and it's like what oh my god like he's he's time traveled. Yeah. Here's my mystery partner. <laughs> <laughs> they can go back and dub him in I think or, or put his little uh not dub him in but uh, re-edit him in. Somebody should get on that. Exactly. It would certainly make sense. It would make sense. It's all I'm saying. So Sable actually, she initially comes to the ring by herself, but then she grabs a mic and introduces her partner, and it is a man who is making his WWF pay-per-view debut, Edge. And first of all, I'd love to know when Sable actually approached Edge about this opportunity, since we've only ever really seen him standing around in the crowd by himself looking sullen. I don't know if she tracked him down at a concession stand when he was buying a hot dog or something, but somehow this has been arranged. And second, I want to get your thoughts on Jacqueline's outfit for this match, because I thought it looked like she was going to one of those 1980s aerobics classes. I wasn't sure if she was on her way to SummerSlam or Jazzercise. Were you, were you a fan of this one? No, it's it's ter- <laughs> it's terrible. But, you know, I, mean, <laughs> I, I have we, I, I was trying to remember, like, 
she has not Jacqueline has not competed like 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 has she how much has she wrestled would you say like total in the shows you've you've covered coming up to this Oh god, like actual wrestling she had a match against Luna on Raw which was like the first women's match on Raw in years. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been literally like 2 or 3 minutes of of ring time. I know over the course of time Jackie's got to be careful with what she wears in the ring cuz I know she has a boob slip at one point, like a very yep. it's an it's a it's a famous boob slip that she's got because yep, of it's her, coming up in a couple of weeks <laughs> because of her outfits, but this one you're right, man. This is totally 80s all the way. Yeah, Jackie ends up becoming the queen of boob slips after a while, I think. Well, we already saw the fully loaded one where it's not even a slip. She just pulls them right out <laughs> to, to steal Sable's thunder. And then there's the one, um, I think they do one like, actually in uh, at one of the UK pay-per-views toward the end of this year where she's on the referee's shoulder and Sable rips off her shirt and then they actually do ex- they expose her breasts for a couple seconds on, uh, on British television, not on American television, but yeah. So, good times. Way to go. Way to go, Jackie. Getting them out for the... Uh, for the horny, rabid male fan base. But, uh, yeah, so anyway, as for this match, I would say pretty solid with a few spots that popped the crowd, including Edge leaping over the top rope and hitting Mero with a crossbody on the arena floor, and in a spot that I certainly was not expecting, Sable went to the top rope and hit Mero with a Hurricane Rana. That's right, Sable's putting her body on the line for the industry that she loves, or likes, or tolerates. So shortly after that spot, Edge hit Mero with the downward spiral, a reverse STO. Then he picked Sable up in a wheelbarrow position and dropped her onto Mero. Referee Tim White made the count, even though I didn't think it was legal for men and women to be in the match at the same time. And your winners were the team of Sable and Edge. So William, what did you think of this one? Uh, dude, the Edge spanking Jackie is one of the weirdest parts oh, yeah. of this match. Like it does yeah. not doesn't make any sense. Why? Yeah, especially for the like the creepy loner <laughs> character that he is. <laughs> it's so bizarre. But again, man, like, all right. So with this one, like, what what I enjoy is that this is a good capping off of the storyline. I hope it is at least. I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure this is it when it comes to the Sable Marrow thing. So, um, hopefully. But I mean, when you look at this, like, this storyline has been going on. For I'm gonna say at least eight months. Yeah, pretty pretty much. It goes back to the, when you first started this podcast. Yeah, yeah, because she was it was the Christmas episode and she was dressed as a reindeer because he made her wear a reindeer costume. Yeah. So yeah, it's at least that long. And I mean, you go through all the stuff in the beginning of '98, and then when she they they make the they do the WrestleMania match, which was you know again another cool it was another cool moment. Time, especially for attitude, it was a cool moment to see. But then, like when it felt like Evers, once they did that, and I loved it, the way Marrow played it was brilliant. When they did the, uh, oh, I'll just let you pin me, and then he pins yeah. her, and then you know she's out. It felt like after that was where it sputtered a little bit. Like it, its right. momentum got a little bit weird. But it was good. It was good to see it pay off in this. Again, just like with the match with the oddities and kind of time, this doesn't go for very long. It doesn't need to. You know You know exactly what the spots you want to see. You want to see Sable do something. You want to see Sable do something to Jackie, but more so you want to see Sable hit a move on Miro, and then you see, I don't know, however, whatever that splash is that she and Edge team up for at the end. Yeah. 
you know, I thought it was all right. I th- again, like I thought it was fine. I'm, I thought it was a good cap off to the storyline. I'd probably fly somewhere again in the middle, like a five out of ten. You know? Yeah. It, I again, I'm going to give Sable some credit for doing a fucking Sable Kenrana, as they called it on the broadcast. Like no one is expecting Sable to do a move like that where you're going to the top rope flipping potentially you know you could hurt yourself if you don't have as much very much training which she obviously doesn't so yeah i was really kind of pleasantly surprised by that and i will admit yes the the sable can run a pop me i wasn't expecting it so um, the thing that's terrible though and you've i think you've mentioned this before sable gets really screamy in this and it's really grating when sable gets screamy in a match like get over here get get over here like it, it it's just it's and it just doesn't was, help. Was with, that Scorpion from Mortal Kombat? Exactly. There? That's what. Yeah. Can you imagine if Sable was Scorpion from Mortal Kombat? <laughs> she just rips can, off. Can the, we get somebody? Can we get somebody ugh. to do that? Just have her throw the spear and do a get over here to Mara? <laughs> but like, that's the thing with her, man. Is her her vo- like the thing that always brings her down is her voice, and then on top of that, like whenever she has to screech, whenever she has to scream, it's the worst sounding thing in the world. It really is. Yeah, yeah, and it's weird too because when she yells, it looks really fucking intense. It, it doesn't look like a sort of um, I, I don't even know if this is the right terminology, but it doesn't look like a sort of you know gimmicked wrestling yell where you're just you know going at your opponent and like ah, I hate you blah blah blah. When she yells, like she, her eyes kind of bug out and she looks crazy, like she would actually be yelling at somebody during a fight, like. Bah! Yeah. So th- that's one thing that jumps out to me too is I'm like Jesus. She looks like she's really fucking pissed. So you know maybe she's. I, I guess she's obviously just that good of an actress that she comes across <laughs> like, clearly. But uh, yeah, it's really bizarre when she when she keeps yelling like that. But yeah, I, I would say this was a perfectly serviceable match as well. I don't think I gave my take on the previous one, but I really liked X Pac and Jared as well. But yeah, so far you know these these mid card matches that have started the show have been really really solid for the most part. So pleasant pleasant surprises all around so far. And so immediately after that match ended, we got a quick cut to JR, who told us that Michael Cole was standing by backstage with Mankind. So Cole informs us that The Undertaker just said that Kane will not show up at SummerSlam tonight, and I'm not sure why they edited that part out on the WWE Network, but whatever. So as a reminder, Kane and Mankind are the reigning WWF Tag Team Champions, but if Kane is not going to show up tonight... Mankind would have to go it alone against the New Age Outlaws, so he's considering forfeiting the titles. So Cole says that him not wrestling would disappoint the fans who want to get their money's worth, and Mankind then starts yelling about how the fans only want to see him hurt himself, so he might as well go play in traffic. However, as he's yelling, Vince McMahon shows up to give him a pep talk, and I'm just going to play this clip because it's an early example of the Vince-Mankind bond, which will develop further in the coming months, And at the very end, we also get a bit of humor from the Mankind character, which will also become much more prominent down the line. So take a listen to to this promo here. Calm down. It's okay. It's me. I mean, it's okay, Vince. I'm going to get killed out there. No, no, no. no. I'm one person. I I understand that. But look, nobody really wants to see you go play in the traffic. I don't think no, that's n- Nobody true. wants to see you come off the top of a cage. I don't think that's C- come true on, come on. This is Madison Square Garden. It's competition yeah. at its height, okay? I mean, come on. Do you remember when you were just a little kid and you hitchhiked yeah. to Madison Square Garden? You remember that? Yeah. Okay. Do you remember like you used to hang around 33rd Street and I'll wait for the boys to come out so you can get autographs? You remember that? Yeah, but this is a I, I don't understand I, that. I don't, but it's Madison Square Garden. It's history. And this is where you belong. This is truly where you belong tonight. 
And I've got an idea, and it may be insane. It may be just a little crazy. But just think about it. If you, if you can, one man successfully defending the tag team championship, one man in Madison Square Garden I I can? on one night. What will happen to me? I can guarantee you, you'll be in Madison Square Garden's Hall of Fame by next week. I will personally guarantee that. Vince, I don't, I, I don't have my sledgehammer. It's false it, count it, anywhere. I don't have it's any It's your weapon. kind of match. I don't it, have a weapon. It's no holes barred. I, you know, falls count anywhere. It's you. I'm it's the, you. Oh, but where's my sledgehammer's not here. I don't have a weapon. There are plenty of weapons around. I need some minute. things, because if I can find something, immortality is something I'm very interested in, and this is the biggest arena in the world, and tonight mankind is going to successfully defend against two people. <laughs> well, look, look, I can hand you, look, I can hand you history in a silver platter. In a silver platter. Vince, if the outlaws don't like it, well... I've got 13 words for them. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? So, William, did you enjoy Mr. McMahon's manipulation of mankind? Oh, this is great. This is so good because this this show, this uh, the SummerSlam 98, is a coming out party for a few guys. Like, mankind's kind of happened, kind of. Happened to King of the Ring, obviously, for obvious reasons. But at the same time, in terms of where his character is going to touch, like, kind of find its best general audience, it's a lot through these promos that you're seeing here. Absolutely. Yeah, the WWE narrative seems to be Mankind went off the cage at King of the Ring, and then he was just, you know, a made guy and everybody loved him. Exactly. You're right. Not the case at all. Yeah, he's really stagnated since King of the Ring. He's basically, I mean, he's been in the tag team with Kane, but... Kane, The Undertaker, and Austin have kind of been in this storyline, and Mankind has just kind of been there. He's basically not been at the forefront at all whatsoever. So, again, that WWE narrative doesn't quite uh, hold up as much. Kind of like how, oh, Austin won the King of the Ring and he was a made guy, when in reality he's in the pre-show at SummerSlam two months later. But, yeah, this kind of touches off that Mankind-Vince McMahon relationship. And I really liked the promo because at this point, you're actually not sure if Vince actually cares about him or if he's manipulating him. You're kind of like, well, I mean, does he care about him or is he just being the promoter and not wanting to screw the fans out of a match? Because he does give him a really good pep talk there where he's like, you're going to be in the Madison Square Garden Hall of Fame by tomorrow if you win the titles or if you retain the titles. So, yeah, at this point, the relationship with Vince and Mankind is just starting to build. And obviously in the coming months, we really see how that takes shape. So in terms of like the long-term booking, where they go with this, I actually give them credit because it'll culminate, spoiler alert, at the Survivor Series. But in between them, we get a, we get a lot of Vince and Mankind, and it's really good stuff. So I, I would say big thumbs up for me on that, uh, on that little backstage promo there. And also, you may want to remember that important bit from that segment where Mankind says that he has misplaced his sledgehammer because that may end up coming into play later. So a bit of a spoiler there. And our next match was the Lion's Den match. Ken Shamrock versus Owen Hart, who was accompanied by his trainer, Dan the Beast Severn. In case you're wondering what the fuck a Lion's Den match is, instead of Shamrock and Owen settling their differences in a wrestling ring, they're locked inside what is essentially a pseudo-UFC cage that's made out of chain-link fence. Essentially, think of it as a pro-wrestling match inside of a much smaller bootleg octagon, and you kind of get the idea. 
And also, while the other matches have been held in the main arena of Madison Square Garden, this one's actually taking place inside a separate theater within MSG, and holy shit, there was quite a rowdy crowd on hand for this one. They were most likely sitting around drinking and watching the other matches up to this point, so let's just say they're pretty pumped. And as for the match itself, in my humble opinion, I feel like this was way better than it had any right to be. The finish came when Owen put Shamrock into a dragon sleeper, but in a really cool spot, Shamrock kicked the chain link fence and flipped himself backward behind Owen. From there, Shamrock took him to the ground with an armbar, then transitioned into the ankle lock. And at that point, Owen pleaded for Dan Severn to throw in the towel, but instead, Severn turned his back on Owen and walked away. I'm actually not sure what the point of this was exactly. I guess did Owen want Severn to throw in, to throw in the towel so he wouldn't have to humiliate himself by tapping out, maybe? I don't know. I assume that's the reason. I'm not sure. Either way, once Severn left, Owen was indeed forced to tap out to the ankle lock, so your winner of the first ever Lion's Den match was Ken Shamrock. So, William, what did you think of this match, which did somehow not result in the WWF being sued by Dana White? It's awesome. This this is a fan. This is a really good. This was much better than I thought it was. I did not think of this match as highly when I was. You know, I liked the finish and everything, but when I really watched this and how physical and how good of just a, a technical match it is, like, man, this is really something to behold. And yeah. this is another good cap off to a feud that's been going on since the day after Mania. Essentially. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah. I think it might have been day after um, Unforgiven okay. when Owen did the turn, yeah. But yeah, but either way, it's been going it's, quite a while. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this was one, like, we with you with you watching each Raw each week, like, it seems like, well, are they going? Are they going to do Shamrock and Severn? Are they going to do this? Are we going to actually get a tag match maybe for the pay-per-view with, with Blackman? You know, it, it, it felt like it was uncertain. But then they did that. They did the, um, they did the dungeon match. They did that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then they were like, okay, that's the Owen match, so we got to do the Shamrock match, and they do this makeshift one. I loved how hard-hitting this was, and I loved the finish because one thing that was really cool is in the weeks leading up to this, or maybe it was just the week of, I forget when they started using this Dragon Sleeper thing. Yeah, yep, a couple weeks prior, yep. But it was great because when Owen would, would bring that out, commentary did a good job of making a point of selling that Severn has clearly been teaching this guy some of his stuff. And this dragon sleeper is really immobilizing like anyone he gets it on. So when he gets it on Shamrock in this match, you've got the anticipation like, oh God, he's oh, he's got that move on Shamrock. What's he gonna do? And then he, you know, just flips over using the cage and it's it's fantastic, man. This is a really good match. It's probably one that kind of sometimes gets, uh, I think, forgotten. But it's one worth revi- revisiting now because it definitely holds up more, so, way more over time. I agree for sure. I was actually watching uh, Money in the Bank the other night, and somebody put – somebody actually – I forget who it was, but somebody actually did use the Dragon Sleeper. And I was like, oh, shit, Dan Severn Sleeper, because I've been watching uh, – I've been watching, you know, so much Attitude Era Raw these days. I was like, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, Dan Severn didn't innovate the Dragon Sleeper, but I've been seeing him do it so often that I was like, oh, shit, shades of Dan Severn right there. Now, so, now Henry, I, I will wish I could say, remember who it was. You, I know you've been, you've been wanting, and granted, during the time period, I think we were all wanting to see Shamrock and Severn. That was the match we all really wanted to get, and we never really got it. And he, no. and and the thing is, like I know in our minds when we go back and we think about it, like how awesome it would have been. At the same time, I, I take into account 
when we've seen a match like the similar take place. Could you imagine if this thing would have turned out more like the first installment of Lesnar and Goldberg, where it's like two guys that are oh. like, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put you over like that. Well, I'm not going to put you over like that. So what are right. we? What are we going to do? Like that's why I was. I was. Gl- I, I was glad this worked out with the Shamrock Owen feud because it does not seem like either guy was really ready to do business with each other between mm-hmm. Shamrock and Severn, and that's why this feud really worked out for the best. Yeah, that was always my assumption too, is that it was probably a case of neither guy wanting to lose the other guy because in the UFC they each beat each other once. So, And at this point too, in terms of wrestling, I think Dan Severn, when he lost to The Rock at King of the Ring, it was his first wrestling loss in something like four years. So he's being built up massively as a wrestler. And of course they also have the history in UFC. So I could see Severin wanting to be like, no, nope, you know, I, I barely lose. So I don't want to do this match. And, you know, I, I don't know if that was the case. I can't really say, I, I don't have any insight into that, but yeah, that was just kind of my assumption is they've been building this up for so long. And maybe, you know, the initial plan was Sam rocks, Shamrock Severin at SummerSlam. There's a tongue twister. And maybe one of the guys just didn't want to play ball. I don't know, but Either way, it gave us a Lions Den match between Shamrock and Owen, and that was that was a damn good match, which probably would have been better than a Shamrock Severn match anyway. So, I approve. And yeah, again, really an, an unexpected hidden gem because I forgot. I, again, this is a match I forgot existed. So when I saw this, I was like, "Oh God, we're doing you know a little bootleg UFC action here." But it was actually really, really good. So definitely seek this match out. A, a forgotten gem on SummerSlam '98 for certain. And we then cut to Michael Cole backstage again, and this time he's with WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin, who is holding his trademark smoking skull belt. Austin says he respects The Undertaker, but he's not above, quote, cheap-shotting him to death, if that's what it takes to hold on to his title. Quite a heelish statement to make there, isn't it? It really is. But, I mean, that's what it was almost like, we're going to dare you to boo this guy. Like, that's the thing where we dare you to try because you know you love him oh yeah and actually on the same topic of of that austin interview are you a fan of the smoking skull belt i love it and i love i had no idea until you broke that story out about he just showed up with it yeah he had it customized and he just showed up on raw one day with it and vince mcmahon was like what the hell but uh, obviously he's still letting yeah, him do you remember now like, like i think at one point the rock had there was a plan for a brahma bull belt Yes, I don't know if he ever actually used I don't it, but think I think did. they did make yeah, it. Yeah, you're right. I I think, I don't know if it was a legit picture, but I swear at one point there was a picture of it that leaked that, that of a Brahma Bull belt. It was like, wow. I, and, you know, they probably did the right thing. Like, we don't want each guy getting their own version of this thing. So, right, right. Yeah, they probably did the right thing, just cutting it off with, all right, we'll, we'll do the Smoking Skull one, but, but we'll wait until we do the Spinner one about 10 years from now. Oh, God. That, I think, is the worst example of customized. <laughs> yes. The earliest example I remember is when Ultimate Warrior was WWF champion and he had the purple strap. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. See, I, I remember when I was like, oh, what, what is he doing? He's got different. I remember the blue strap. I remember like mm-hmm. he had those different colored straps for it. I was like, that's, uh, I didn't know you could do that. So. I know. I, I had no idea either. But uh, if you go back and watch, uh, I think it's Royal Rumble 91 where Slaughter beats him in, in front of the troops watching all around the world, which is really classy. Uh, when Slaughter beats him for the title, Slaughter is holding up that purple WWF championship that Warrior had. So I thought that was a pretty, a pretty cool moment in retrospect where you're like, oh, this, 
this moment where Slaughter wins his first and only title. He's holding up Warrior's purple belt. So pretty pretty cool stuff. But yeah, in general, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Smoking Skull belt as well. And uh, and typically a favor of custom, in favor of customized belts, but that spinner belt for John Cena, I think, is just you know if fine for the for the United States Championship when he had that, but doing that to the main title in the company for so long was just oh my god, I, I couldn't believe how long they used that fucking belt. I know. Even when Cena, when it wasn't even Cena, you know, when it was everybody else. So it's ugh. but neither here nor there, I suppose. And up next, it's time for the WWF Tag Team Titles match between reigning champion Mankind, without Kane, and challengers, the New Age Outlaws. So, amusingly, when Tony Chimmel announces the stipulations of the match, he refers to it as, quote, a no-holds-barred, pinfalls, match count anywhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Not, not even close on that one. So when the Outlaws come to the ring, we see that they're wheeling a dumpster with them, or as the Road Dog called it during his intro, a diggity diggity dizumpster, because he's the coolest guy ever. Uh, you may recall the Outlaws faced Mick Foley and Terry Funk in a dumpster match five months prior at WrestleMania, but they actually lost the tag titles in that match, so I'm surprised they wanted anything to do with a dizumpster. And as you might expect, Mankind took quite a bit of punishment in this match, including both outlaws smacking him in the head simultaneously with cookie sheets, getting thrown backwards headfirst into the side of the dumpster, and being powerbombed on top of two chairs. And amusingly, after that last spot, Foley kicked out at two when the road dog attempted to pin him, but you could briefly hear them start to play the outlaws theme music anyway, <laughs> followed, by, <laughs> followed by Billy Gunn yelling, SHIT! The MSG production team is clearly not on its A-game tonight, and the crowd rewarded them for it by starting a brief you-fucked-up chant. And shortly thereafter, the Outlaws did actually finish the match by hitting Mankind with a spike pile driver onto one of the tag titles, and that was enough to score the three count. Your winners, and now three-time WWF Tag Team Champions of the World, the New Age Outlaws. And after the match, the Road Dog announced them as the new champions, but then Billy Gunn grabbed the mic and said they're going to throw Mankind into the dumpster where he belongs. Now, this part was actually pretty confusing, because the Outlaws were quite obviously babyfaces going in, but the whole match consisted of both of them brutally double-teaming Mankind, and now they're humiliating him for no reason whatsoever. So that was kind of heelish on their part. So sure enough, Billy then does indeed pick up the unconscious Mankind, drop him into the dumpster, and close the lid. The outlaws then pose on the turnbuckles with their titles, but then the dumpster lid opens, and we see that Kane was inside. Not only that, but he's holding the sledgehammer that Mankind misplaced earlier. He then proceeds to raise the sledgehammer and quickly drop it down, presumably onto Mankind's skull. We don't actually see the sledgehammer blow because Mankind is at the bottom of the dumpster, but Jim Ross does a hell of a job selling it by damning Kane to hell for his actions. So, William, your thoughts on this match and Kane's attempted murder of Mick Foley. All right, all right, Glenn, this is what I want you to do. Glenn, I want you, I want you to go find that sledgehammer, and I just want you to camp out in that dumpster. This is going to be gold. Just wait till that match is over, and then you just pop up, because you know what? MSG hard cam, baby. Boom. So, like, That's right. This, this thing, like, you're right, man. Like, JR tries to cover for this match by saying the outlaws, you, you can't fault the outlaws because the outlaws are just fighting the match they signed, they, that they signed a contract for, which he's right. He's right. Uh, you can, here's another line you can file under will never be said in 2017 where JR says, I'd like to have a dollar for every Mick Foley concussion. Right, yes. But 
this match, like, as kind of ridiculous and one-sided as it is, like, I mean, it, it is exactly as we you thought it was going to be. Like, it was, these guys are just going to gang up on him. We saw this on Raw back in April or March, you know, way back when they, they've done this multiple times to McFoley. But... This match does a go. This match goes a long way, I think, in creating that babyface mankind persona, where it's like, yes, this this guy is going to take an absolute beating, like Daniel Bryan will in 2013 and 14, and you're gonna love it because this guy's gonna keep getting up and he's gonna keep trying to fight his way through it. Those near falls have the crowd really into it, like those. I mean, they're 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 as false finishes that are as 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 well done as Undertaker and Roman Reigns from Mania this year, where it was like, Jesus, what's it gonna take? So, right. the thing though, you're right though is, on the one hand, afterwards, I get why the Outlaws are really hyped up because they've got the belts, why they have them do that because let's face it, they kind of got thrown out of like they, there was there really was no good reason to take the belts off of them because they are the best tag team maybe not the best working oh, yeah. like they don't they're you know not the best technical team but they have the most connection with the crowd they deserve to have the belts so we're going to hot shot the belts off of them throw them on Kane Mankind and then Austin Taker and then back to Kane Mankind here and it's like what are we doing like with our best tag team? So you, I, I can get why they're really hyped up afterwards that Billy Gunn part is the part where I was like this doesn't really belong. This does not help your like kind of face persona here. But at the same time, I don't think it necessarily hurts them because the crowd is pretty indifferent to it anyway. But, you know, as a match, like, you can't grade this one terribly high. But in the same way, though, it goes a long way to, to furthering Mankind's character. Definitely, yeah. I think this is really good at mining a lot of sympathy for Mankind, for Mick Foley, because early in the night we get that promo with Vince where he's kind of like a, a son looking for his father's approval, you know, where he's, he's kind of like, oh, okay, Vince, you know, for you, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to go one-on-two, and I'm going to retain the tag titles. And then what happens to him is he gets his ass kicked, and then he gets his head crushed by a goddamn sledgehammer. So it really does go a long way toward shifting that sympathy on top of the fact that as Mankind mentioned in the promo, he got thrown off the top of the goddamn cell two months ago. So he's willing to show up and put his body on the line for the fans. And I, I thought this was incredibly effective. I remember this time period feeling so much sympathy for Mankind, for Mick Foley, because I was like, God damn, like this guy just gets his ass kicked every single night. He just wants you know approval from the fans or in character he wants approval from he Vince. Is, look at his... And, when you look at when you get to the end of this year, go back and kind of think about like where you started in January of '98 with with Mick Foley, and look at his arc. He has he has one of the more underrated arcs of '98. Right. Yes, incredible. Yeah, that moment, that last. Um, well, they film it at the end of '98. They air it in the the first week of '99. I, I guess I shouldn't spoil too much there, but it's one of my all time favorite raw moments. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you probably know what I'm talking about, yeah, where yeah. Uh, where you know it finally happens for him. I think it's and up in your neck the, of the woods too, isn't it? It's it's in Worcester, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. I was there actually for the uh, in that same arena. I think for the uh, SmackDown draft earlier uh, oh, last year. Okay. The, excuse me, the SmackDown Raw draft show they did, where they just split the rosters. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, that's that that Worcester arena probably holds ten thousand people. But when he wins the belt, it sounds like it might as well be in the TD Garden where you got twenty thousand people in there. Yeah, it blows the roof off the place. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting around to that one. Although it'll be probably quite a while on my timeline. Still probably about three four months away. But 
again, one of my all-time favorite Raw moments ever, um, where that guy who they built up so much sympathy for finally gets one over, and, and you would never, you never expect it. Like mankind, Mick Foley, this kind of schlubby guy. It's, it's, it's insane, but really very rewarding to watch if, if you've you know followed him for as long as you know a lot of wrestling fans have back to when he was Cactus Jack in the late '80s. So, good stuff, good stuff coming up in the coming months. And so our next match was the ladder match for the WWF Intercontinental title. Champion The Rock, accompanied by Mark Henry, versus challenger Triple H, accompanied by China. So ladder matches are obviously more commonplace in present-day wrestling. The recent Money in the Bank pay-per-view featured two of them. But this is only the third ever ladder match the WWF put on pay-per-view, with the previous two of them involving uh, Triple H's pals Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. So for some reason... Hunter is rocking shiny purple tights on this night instead of the standard DX colors of black and green. Bit of an odd choice there. One thing I forgot about this match was that the DX band actually did a live performance of the DX theme as Triple H came to the ring, and they were even joined by Jim Johnston, the man who has given us so much joy over the years with his music. Pretty cool to see him out there. He's the old guy with the DX band, obviously. And speaking of theme songs, we actually get the debut of a brand new theme song for The Rock on this night. He's had a couple variations over the years, but this is the one called The Rock Says, which ends up being put on WWF The Music Volume 3. But enough about the music. It's time for the blow-off match for one of the classic Attitude Era feuds, DX versus The Nation of Domination. It's also the last pay-per-view match we'll see between The Rock and Triple H for a little while anyway, so let's get into it. Now, the ladder was initially positioned in the aisle, and the first one to bring it into the ring was The Rock. He propped it up under the belt and started climbing, but in a moment that popped me, Triple H climbed to the top rope, leaped, and knocked Rock off the ladder. That's right, Triple H went to the top rope. You won't be seeing that very often in the next 19 years of his career, so enjoy that one. When Rock went back on the offensive, it was a bit faint, but I believe I heard dueling Let's Go Rocky and Rocky Sucks chants from the MSG crowd. Ultimately, the Rocky Sucks chants ended up being much louder, but it appears that the self-proclaimed People's Champion may actually be starting to win over some of the people after all. So Rock actually controlled the majority of the match in the early going, as he frequently targeted Hunter's injured knee, which he had attacked earlier on Sunday Night Heat. One spot in particular featured Rock putting Hunter's knee between the rungs of the ladder and repeatedly smacking it with a chair, which was pretty brutal. Shortly thereafter, both men brawled into the aisle, and Triple H went to pedigree Rock face-first onto the ladder, but Rock reversed it and backdropped Hunter onto the ladder instead. Fucking ouch. Eventually, Hunter was able to gain some momentum, and at one point, he actually executed a baseball slide to the ladder, which then smacked Rock in the face. Apparently, Triple H was channeling his inner Jeff Hardy on that one. So this resulted in Rock doing a blade job, so we have some color at Madison Square Garden. One really cool aspect of the match that I enjoyed was that at several points, the fans were getting so into it that they started repeatedly stomping their feet on the ground, and you could actually hear the rumbling throughout the arena. Awesome stuff. And on the note of the crowd getting into the match, when The Rock slammed Triple H onto a ladder and the fans realized he was setting them up, setting him up for a people's elbow, holy shit, did they come alive for that. And when Rock hit the elbow, they followed it up with loud Rocky chants to show their appreciation. He's been one of the most hated heels in the company for a solid year at this point, but as of right now, these fans are fucking ready for a Rock face turn. No question. However, with that being said, 
They love Triple H, too. So when Hunter yanked Rock off the ladder, then followed it up with a pedigree, the crowd gave him a massive pop for that as well. I have to say, for me, just seeing how much the fans were into this match made it that much more enjoyable for me to watch. They were eating this shit up, and I fucking love it. Unfortunately for Triple H, before he can capitalize on that pedigree, Mark Henry grabs some powder and throws it into Hunter's face, seemingly blinding him. Triple H feels around and manages to climb up the ladder, but he's fumbling around for the belt because he can't see it. The Rock then starts climbing up the other side of the ladder, and from there, well, I'll just play the clip for you, and be sure to listen to the massive pop that the ending of this match gets. He got it! He's touching it! They're both up there! Oh, that's it! Rock's gonna get the... Otana is in! Otana the low blow! What about that? Otana the low blow! Where was the rap? No! That's a nice crowd! Hell's in looking for gold! Get up, Rob! Get up, Rob! He got it! Triple H, can he find it? Yes! 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 He got it! So as you could hear in that clip, China hit the rock with a low blow, knocking him off the ladder. From there, Triple H was able to grab the Intercontinental title, winning the belt in an incredibly fast-moving 24 minutes and 32 seconds, and ending The Rock's title reign after almost nine months. And truthfully, the fact that China was directly responsible for Hunter winning is my only minor quibble with this match, because the previous 24 minutes of it featured Triple H and The Rock going toe-to-toe with each other. But again, that's a pretty minor nitpick. I thought this match was goddamn fantastic. And afterwards, Hunter's DX buddies, X-Pac, and the New Age Outlaws joined him to celebrate, and JR points out that every member of DX has been victorious on this night, so their summer-long struggles are certainly well behind them now. Also, if you're watching on the WWE Network, we actually get what they label to be exclusive home video footage of The Rock coming back through the curtain, where we also get the kayfabe-killing audio of Bruce Prichard and Pat Patterson asking someone where The Undertaker is, but (laughs) anyway. uh, So Rock dismisses a doctor who tries to tend to his bloody face, and then he tells Triple H that they'll meet again eventually. And that was your ladder match. So William, what were your thoughts on this one? Well, all right. So you're right about the finish. Like this, it's the only thing that keeps it away from being like almost like a man. I, I would come close to saying it's a ten out of ten because it's pretty perfect. Mm-hmm. It's almost perfect. That ending though is the only thing that hurts it. But at the same time, it makes sense based off of that raw that you're talking about, the uncomfortable segment. Like it makes sense. It, it they they actually were really smart in setting that up because it's not like it comes out of nowhere. The other thing that's really really interesting is for a lot of '98. A little bit in 97, China and Triple H would get one over on Slaughter by throwing powder in his eyes. So oh, yeah. It's a nice callback to see Triple I H forgot. get with it. You know, just a little bit. It's a nice touch. But this match is truly, like, something that I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy for these guys in terms of 98 where it's been. Because, let's face it, 1998 is dominated by Steve Austin, 
and whoever he's feuding with, you know, at the time, whether it's Vince McMahon, whether it's Dude Love, whether it's Kane or Undertaker or whatever. And to see these guys like, yep, we're going to steal this thing tonight. We're going to steal one from Austin, you know, which ordinarily, like, you know, like I'm an all-in Austin guy, but, man, this match is definitely match of the night, and it, it sets both of these guys up going forward. The other thing that was cool was, and I love when they, they, I love when they, A, do this type of thing, but then B, follow up on it, is Sunday Night Heat, Triple H gets his knee caught, right? They catch his mm-hmm. knee with that, uh, whatever that belt shot was, whatever he did, uh, Rock did to his knee. And they use that in this match. Like, that becomes a big focal point of the match is how is Triple H's knee going to hold up? In fact, like, in, in as a shoot, I, I think his knee was in, in trouble because like, I, don't, I don't think this reign is very long. That he's, Correct. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I and I, I don't even know if he actually truly defends it in a in a pay per view before he has to vacate it because of the injury. But it's it's a landmark match, definitely for not just Triple H but The Rock. The Rock truly because like I love that footage they show when they show him walking backstage because you can kind of hear the applause a little bit that he's getting like the pops from the the crew and stuff for that type of match. But uh, yeah, man, that's. That's a very special match. And the other thing is, too, like, we're conditioned nowadays. Like, when you see Money in the Bank and you see ladder matches, it's like, you got to get guys who are willing to do, like, crazy bumps off of ladders. Nah, I mean, these guys aren't going to do that necessarily. They're going to use the ladder as a very dangerous, like, striking weapon. Not something they're going to jump off of necessarily, but they will use it to damage something of yours. Yes, I'm really glad you pointed that out because that's a point I was going to make, too. I was worried going back and watching this, having seen, you know, a billion Money in the Bank matches, the TLC, where it's just nonstop spot after spot with the ladders and all sorts of other objects. Obviously, going in, I knew it wasn't going to be the case for this match, but this match as a ladder match holds up perfectly well. You're not getting a billion spots with the ladder. You're getting, like you said, a lot of spots where the guys are just using it to incapacitate each other, where The Rock is, you know, slamming Triple H's knee in it, and um, the one again where Triple H goes for the pedigree and Rock backdrops him onto it. Just the spots are not huge, big spots, but they're spots where you can be like, oh god, that looked like it really hurts, and they really maximize the ladder when they do bring it into play. So, Really fantastic. And again, like you said, this match 100% steals the show. And you can hear it in the crowd's reaction. I've gone back and played that ending so many times because just listening to that crowd pop is insane. They love that match. They love that finish. They loved Triple H finally ending The Rock's massive intercontinental title run. Uh, as I said, almost nine months. So everything about this match, like you said, if it's not a 10, it's got to be you know 9.5 somewhere in there because it's just... Phenomenal. So, highest recommendation, and again, I think also, I don't know if you would say the same thing, but I would think also match of the night for certain. I, it's, Henry, it may be match of the year. Yeah, that, that's I, I don't point know too. if anything this year is on this type of level of a match. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I can't think, like, Hell in a Cell in, in King of the Ring is a special match, but it's, it's you know, it, a lot of it is just mankind being wheeled out and a lot of waiting right. and waiting and waiting. This match is a technical like match of the year, like without a doubt. Yeah, I would say the Hell in a Cell is more of a spectacle than a match, uh, because it's just kind of like, holy shit, what is this guy going to do next, you know? But yeah, I, I could totally see as well. Uh, that'll be something I might have to go reevaluate at the end of uh, the 1998 podcast here and find uh, 
what the match of the year was, but this one, yeah, this match has, I think, resonated with me more than any other because it also helps the fact that DX was on that summer-long losing streak where they were just losing matches every week. The Nation of Domination was constantly outsmarting them. The Rock was outsmarting Triple H. And I think that all plays into this match, too, where the crowd is just like, yeah, we really we like The Rock's sort of ascension to being you know, more of a good guy, but we're really ready for Triple H to take that goddamn title off him because it's been so long. And yeah, at this point, he's easily the longest tenured, well, if we don't count Takamichi Noku's light heavyweight championship reign, The Rock is easily the longest reigning champion in the company. And doing it as a heel for so long, people were ready. The fans were ready for him to lose it. And as it turns out, go on to, you know, bigger and better things. But yeah, again, I, I've listened to that pop so many times at the end that the MSG crowd just absolutely loved it. And uh, I loved it too. So thumbs way, way up for the Rock Triple H ladder match. Possibly, I would say, maybe their best match between the two of them, and they've had some absolute classics. The Iron Man match, too, that comes down the line. I think that's a really yeah. good one, but yeah, yeah. This, is, this is fantastic. So thumbs way up. But now it's time for your main event of the evening. At long last, after months of buildup, the highway to hell ends here in your WWF championship match. Champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Challenger, The Undertaker. It all comes down to this. So the first interesting thing I noticed here was the Taker actually walked very briskly to the ring instead of taking his time like he usually does. So clearly he's setting the tone that he's in no mood to mess around. That on the other I side... Would, oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I would say that or Triple H and Rock went way over on time. <laughs> or, yeah, or that, or that. And on the other side, much like his entrance at WrestleMania 13, Stone Cold had a panel of glass which broke when his entrance theme started up. Uh, not quite as cool the second time around, though, especially since you could see some guys sweeping up the broken glass in the background since the ramp was across from the camera. So way to kill the mystique there, WWF. So we had some big let's-go-Austin chants at the start of this match because, well, I mean, the guy is over as fuck. Unfortunately, things went very wrong only about two and a half minutes into the match. So, William, are you familiar with the injury that Stone Cold suffers very early well, on here? If you listen, if you listen to Steve Austin's podcast, I, I'd say once, maybe every couple months, he will bring this spot up. I swear he okay. he, he loves the man. I I, I kicked under um, Undertaker, put his head down. I kicked him in the gut, and he popped me in the chin. I was looking up the lights, and Earl comes over to me. He's like, "You know where you're at? Hell, I don't know where I'm at, Earl. You're in the garden, son." <laughs> it's funny that you're quoting that because I actually have like a verbatim quote that I was going to play in just a minute. <laughs> but, um, or not play, but I was going to read it. So, but yeah, that's exactly right. So the injury happens literally, it's about two and a half minutes into the match. Undertaker, very standard wrestling spot. He whips Austin off the ropes. Taker ducks down as though he's going to give Austin a backdrop. Instead, Stone Cold foils it by kicking Taker in the chest. And that's where it all goes horribly wrong, because when Austin kicks The Undertaker, Taker pops up too quickly, and their heads collide, resulting in Stone Cold being knocked to the ground. In real time, the spot kind of looks a little silly, because Austin just got the better of Taker by kicking him, but then he's the one who goes to the mat. So here's a quick quote from when Austin told the story, or I guess one of the times when Austin told the story on his podcast. Here's a quote from him. I hit the ropes, Undertaker... No, I won't, I won't do it in Austin voice. <laughs> I hit the ropes, Undertaker goes for a backdrop, I kick him in the chest, he's going to straighten up and no-sell it, and when he does, the back of his big-ass head hits me right under the chin, and boom, knockout blow. I went down on the mat, I was knocked out. I was only knocked out for maybe two or three seconds, all of a sudden I'm laying on the mat, 
on my back in Madison Square Garden. I don't know where I am. The referee of that match was Earl Hebner. Earl Hebner looks at me. He kind of has this little grin on his face. He says, God dang, boy, are you all right? I looked up at Earl. I said, where am I? He goes, God damn it, boy, you're in the garden. So I get up and continue the match. And one of my biggest disappointments in that match was that we were on our way to a hell of a match and I got knocked out. From that point on, I don't remember the rest of the match. So during that same podcast, Austin actually goes on to say that he and Undertaker were actually not at all happy with this match at all, but we can discuss our own thoughts on that in just a little bit. So going back and watching this match, knowing about that injury in advance, you can really tell that Austin was pretty groggy in the minutes following that knockout blow. And to his credit, Jim Ross actually called out the collision on commentary and said that Austin may have been dazed by it. So it appears you certainly can't get one past good old JR. So after Austin reverses an old-school attempt by throwing Undertaker off the top rope, Kane starts walking down the ramp. However, in a surprising moment, Taker motions for Kane to head backstage. Apparently, he wants a fair fight one-on-one between himself and Stone Cold, so Kane does indeed honor that request, and he goes right back to the locker room. Austin and Undertaker resume the match, and shortly after Kane leaves, both men decide to start brawling through the crowd, with Earl Hebner following them. I'm pretty sure this was never announced as a no-count-out, no-DQ match, so I guess Earl is just using his discretion here in allowing the match to continue. At one point, Austin went to give Taker a pile driver amongst the fans, but Taker reversed it and backdropped him, causing Stone Cold to land on the concrete. Who's he think he is, Mick Foley? Eventually, they made their way back to the commentators, and Taker tossed Austin on top of the Spanish announce table. With Stone Cold incapacitated, the Undertaker went to the ring apron, then he climbed to the top rope, and holy shit, the Undertaker leapt from the top turnbuckle and hit Austin with a flying leg drop through the announce table. Well, okay, they they didn't really go through the announce table. More accurately, they both kind of slid off of it, but it was still an awesome spot. So both men were down on the ground for a while, but the Undertaker was the first man to get to his feet. He slid Austin back into the ring and covered him, but he only got a two count. The match continued on, and then we got a strange-looking spot where Taker threw Austin chest-first into the turnbuckle, but then Austin countered with what I think was supposed to be a stunner, but instead it kind of looked like Stone Cold grabbed Taker by the neck and they both just fell down. Uh, It was actually very sloppy, but then again, at this point, Austin probably thinks he's back at the Broken Skull Ranch, so I'll give him a pass. I'll give him a pass for that one. When both men got back to their feet, Taker managed to hit Austin with a choke slam, and then he signaled for the tombstone, the very same move that almost crippled Stone Cold at last year's SummerSlam. However, Austin wriggled free and then attempted a stunner, but Taker blocked that by picking him up and dropping him crotch-first onto the top rope, which is certainly a unique counter. The Undertaker then grabbed Austin's arm, and he went to the top rope for another attempt at old school. However, when he jumped, Stone Cold hit him with a low blow in midair. From there, Austin kicked him in the stomach and hit him with the stunner, and that was enough to score the victory at a time of 20 minutes and 50 seconds. Pretty abrupt ending there, it seemed. And after the match, Earl Hebner brought the WWF Championship into the ring, but The Undertaker took it from him. Taker then motioned as though he might hit Austin with the belt, but instead he handed it over to him in a show of respect, which actually seems a bit weird considering the fact that Stone Cold had just hit him with a cheap shot to the balls about a minute ago. Taker then walked up the ramp where he was joined by Kane. The Brothers of Destruction then stared at Stone Cold for a bit as he celebrated in the ring with his WWF title, but then they walked backstage, and that 
is how we go off the air. So, William, what did you think of Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker's collision on the highway to hell? You know, um, we've talked about this on our podcast because we covered an, a Taker-Austin match from, I believe it was Judgment Day of 01. They, mm-hmm. they, they had a match, and this is when it was American Badass Undertaker and Steve Austin. And the thing is, and, and this is not the final Austin-Taker pay-per-view match. There's an, they're not just talking about breakdown, but... At Rock Bottom, they're going to have that match, a Buried Alive match. The thing is, though, Rock and Austin seem to have what we call, what we have this label that we give Austin and Jericho. The same thing applies for Austin and Taker. They have anti chemistry. Like, it, for whatever reason, and I don't know what it is, and I've tried to rationalize what it might be, and I think a lot of it had to do after Austin's injury and the way Austin worked versus the way Taker worked. It just never worked very well together. Both of these guys are huge stars. They're iconic, but they just don't have great matches together. The match that right. they probably did the best with was Cold Day in Hell. The oh, yeah, yeah. That, I remember that. That was shortly after the, the Austin-Brett match at WrestleMania 13. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might be like their best match they've worked together because this one – and I, I, what I was surprised about watching the injury again – how like it? I thought he was. I honestly, after hearing the story, I thought he was blacked out a little bit longer. Instead, he yeah. he kind of gets moving pretty quick. He uh, does, yeah. Surprisingly, and the match from there is just kind of it's it's a it's kind of a typical Austin brawl kind of match in a way. Sure. You know when when you when you just look at where the summer this summer for Steve Austin had been like, it was a good way to cap it off. If you're going to rebook this a couple different ways, you. They, I would have liked him to go all in with just like commit to Taker being either a heel or something. Instead, like yeah. instead, like the, the the other thing that kind of hurts this match is you've got two pretty big baby faces going at it in a main event match, and they they had done a great job building this to where like they had tried to create some animosity. You know, they did a great job. That tag title run was great. I love that part of this feud because it's unexpected to make these guys pair up together. So. When you take all that into account, like, I thought it was all right. Like, you know, definitely coming off of Triple H and Rock, it's nowhere near close. It's yeah, n- I think, nowhere uh, near. Yeah, for sure. I think, actually, in one of the recent episodes that uh, of Pritchard's podcast, he mentions that same sort of thing that you just said, where because both Undertaker and Austin were kind of doing this angle where it was like a mutual respect sort of thing going in, where it was face versus face, they felt that that hurt the match a little bit because it wasn't, you know, one guy is the clear heel, one guy is the clear face. It was both guys kind of being like, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're baby faces. We're just going to, you know, beat the crap out of each other. Obviously, Kane is still very much a heel, but under and Undertaker's aligned with him, but Undertaker's still keeping his face status. So maybe if they had, you know, had the foresight to turn Undertaker heel when he joined up with Kane, that might have, you know, maybe Dude, put him, swung the crowd. Have him join Vince. Like, the fact that they're both feuding with Vince doesn't help either. Right. That yeah. that doesn't help because Vince is ultimately Austin's number one nemesis. Now, granted, in May when we remember last time we had a show when we were doing the the go home for Over the Edge and Taker basically mm-hmm. cemented himself as the enforcer, quote unquote, for that match with Dude Love and Austin, where Vince was the referee. Like that started this Taker run where it's like I I still have a place here. I want my title shot, and he was really trying to push that hard, and that's kind of what we got throughout this summer and everything. It's just a weird time for The Undertaker as a character. 
It is a weird yeah. time. Granted, like he's about to hit like an, the next stage of his character that I've honestly I've seen it go is I've eh, I think more people prefer this next stage than they do the biker taker. I love biker taker, but <laughs> when, when he moves into the next stage of his character here, where he's still in kind of semi classic Undertaker phase, people like it. But this this phase from like January of ninety eight through you know I guess it'll be like maybe September October. It's an awkward phase. I don't like it where they don't know really what they're doing with him. I don't yes. think. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. There have been quite a few moments throughout the duration of this podcast where, you know, Taker kind of breaks character and says, I've always been here. You know, I've never gotten my title shot. And when I did win the title, it was very brief because Vince McMahon doesn't want me to be the champ. Kind of, you know, breaking kayfabe a little bit. A couple times they show him, like, you know, wheeling his bag into the arena <laughs> like he's just, like he's another fucking guy, even though he's still the Undertaker. They show him in sweatpants. It's like, what the hell is going on here? You know, I don't want to see, if you're going to do a thing where it's where it's like the American badass Taker where, you know, full-time, that's who he is. But there are plenty of times where it's like, Taker's wheeling his bag into the arena. He's wearing sweatpants and a little headband. And then he comes out later and he's, you know, the Undertaker character. It's like, why are you doing that? Why are you calling attention to the fact so obviously that he's a character? We, we know that. You don't need to tell us that. So, yeah, it, it is definitely an awkward stage for Taker. But I will say that I do prefer his, his upcoming phase to the American Badass phase. I wasn't a huge fan of the American Badass Undertaker as much. But when he kind of, I guess you could say, turns the volume up to 11 on the, on the Undertaker character in a few months, as cartoonish and ridiculous as it is, uh, spoiler alert, when you're cutting your own wrists and having another wrestler drink your blood, that's pretty cartoony. But, um, but it's, uh, it's enjoyable cartoony from my mind because it's just like, wow, they actually thought this was a good idea. Okay, great, fantastic. But yeah, all in all, I guess my, my final wrap-up on it would be, what were your over, overall thoughts on uh, SummerSlam 1998 as a whole. It's a good show. It's a really good show, especially when you look at, like, when you get through the show like this, you're like, was it worth all the buildup? Absolutely. You know, with <laughs> all the key feuds, like, this is this was a good wrap-up. You know, like, I, I, it's, I'm hard-pressed to really find anything that's really awful on this show. Like, I really think it's all, you know, at... I think at worst you're talking maybe a five, but everything else is definitely above it. I think this is a great show for the year. Absolutely, yeah. And again, as I said, I hadn't watched this show literally since I ordered it on pay-per-view in 1998. And this was like an absolute pleasure to watch for me, just going back. Every match, as you said, uh, even the mid-card ones where it was just kind of like some of them didn't have much build like Val and Dilo, but everything was, was really solid. You know, I wasn't as huge a fan of Kai and Taya in the oddities because that went about 10 minutes, which I think is a bit long for a comedy match, but everything else was at least enjoyable. Even the intergender match, very brief, very enjoyable. Sable hitting a fucking Hurricane Rana. The Lion's Den match, which was hugely surprising for me in a really great way. It was a fantastic little encounter for whatever it was. The ladder match, obviously massive highlight of the show and undertaker austin again it it wasn't the best match it probably would have been better if austin didn't get knocked the fuck out but overall i didn't hate the match it was 20 minutes they obviously gave him quite a bit of time but at no point was i like oh god you know whatever this is this is boring i was still really into it even knowing that austin won but i think i was also into it because i didn't remember going in exactly how Austin won. I was like, is there interference? Is there something or other? But as it turns out, he does beat him. I don't want to say cleanly because he did give him a ball shot, but I mean, it was 
both those guys just going toe to toe, and Austin hits him with one and, stunner. And Austin and said he would chip, he would cheap shot his way to get the title. So he had, exactly he, right. He set it up. He called it. He called it in advance in that promo. And uh, yeah, I, and again, you know, I, I hate to point it out, but he beat him on the second biggest show of the year with one stunner. People, just one. Didn't take him six like it takes nowadays in present day WWE. One fucking stunner and you're done. So yeah, again, I give a massive thumbs up to SummerSlam '98. This was an absolute pleasure to watch, top to bottom. And uh, go go fucking watch it. Go on the network after this podcast ends and go fucking watch SummerSlam 1998. As for the Raw after, we can we can get into that in a little bit. But definitely check out SummerSlam '98. So we really enjoyed this pay per view, but. Did wrestling fans actually tune in for it at the time? Well, SummerSlam 1998 did a whopping 700,000 pay-per-view buys, which makes it the most purchased SummerSlam in the history of the WWF slash WWE. Not only that, this is also the most purchased non-WrestleMania pay-per-view in the entire Attitude Era. For comparison's sake, WCW's Road Wild pay-per-view from three weeks ago drew 365,000 buys, so the WWF almost doubled them up this month. Any way you slice it, this was a resounding success for the World Wrestling Federation, uh, big credibly cre- big, and financially. Big credit to ACDC, that highway to hell, because at no point have they really used a song like that this year right. to promote a show. I remember that made me go buy, this, buy their album. I hadn't listened to them before. That, that made me go buy that album without question. Number two, yes. the video package they built up for it made it look like a real big-time main event show. Again, they didn't really have that with even even the WrestleMania match. Like You know what I'm talking about where Austin and Taker walk through the, the, the apocalyptic New York to face each other? Oh, yeah. The one where Austin finds a guy in a car and, like, like flips him off or whatever. I don't know what he's doing yeah. in there. It's basically all the footage they'll use for his entrance video when they update it. But I, it's, I mean, those two things I, th- I think contribute heavily to it. That, that ACDC, you can't underestimate. When they get a good song in there, it's not coincidence, I think, that the show does really well as well. So what you're saying is Great Balls of Fire is going to be massive <laughs> in a few weeks. You're just getting, <laughs> just use that old song. Just get Anthony Edwards out on stage to play with a piano. Just do it. There, yeah. There you go. I'd like that. That'd be pretty good. So there you have it, folks. Go Again, everything about it. If you can find an old version of SummerSlam that actually has Highway to Hell on it, even better. But, but other than that, if you have to watch it on the network, that's obviously fine as well. Great show. Fantastic show. So how can you possibly follow up an epic show like that? Clearly, the answer is with what is hopefully an awesome episode of Monday Night Raw. William, are you ready to dive into Raw? I am. Let's do it. That's good because we're almost an hour 50 in already. Now's as good a time as any. So it is Monday. No, wait. What's this? It is Saturday, September 5th, 1998. What the hell? Why is Raw airing on a Saturday this week at fucking 11 o'clock at night East Coast time? Well... The reason is because the U.S. Open tennis tournament had just begun and the USA Network decided to preempt Raw on Monday in favor of live coverage of the tournament instead. Can you imagine the Raw after SummerSlam, a show that did 700,000 buys, had to be pushed back to 11 o'clock p.m. on a Saturday, traditionally the night of the week, when the fewest people watch television? I can only speculate as to what the rating for this Raw would have been if it had aired in its regular time slot. 
And sadly, it won't just be this episode. Next week's episode of Raw will be preempted for U.S. Open coverage as well, so we'll actually get two straight Saturday Raw episodes. I can't say for sure that this is the official reason why Vince eventually moved Raw to TNN, but I think it's likely. Call me crazy. So anyway, it is Saturday, September 5th, 1998, and we are pre-taped five days in advance from the New Haven Coliseum in New Haven, Connecticut, only about an hour and a half drive from Stanford. Not a ton of noteworthy events have occurred in this building, but there is one in particular which happens about seven months from this show, the pilot episode of SmackDown in April of 1999. Pretty important benchmark there. So we open with a recap of the SummerSlam main event, showing nothing but still pictures, of course, and then we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. And as a quick side note, after the pyro, the very first image we see is a zoomed-in shot of two DX glow sticks situated in a tank top between some lovely young girl's breasts, so clearly we're off and running. Some of the entertaining signs tonight include, Hey Mick, can I play in traffic with you? Double J Jeff Jobber. (laughs) I I stained Monica's dress. I'd rather eat in China. Val has crabs, and my personal favorite, Hawk, two words, Betty Ford. <laughs> so, so were there any more signs that you noticed on this night, William? Uh, you, you pretty much nailed the, the one. I like the double J, Jeff Jobber. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really to the point. J-E-double-F-J-O-double-B. Anyway. So we officially begin the show with Vince McMahon walking to the ring, and he has quite the smile on his face for some reason. He grabs a mic and tells us that on September 27th, at the upcoming Breakdown pay-per-view, his Machiavellian scheme will be unfolded. Well, actually, he mispronounces and says mac but that's okay. Vince says the pay-per-view is called Breakdown because Stone Cold Steve Austin will be experiencing both a mental and physical breakdown when he loses his WWF championship. Championship, I should say. In fact, Vince goes so far as to guarantee that Austin will lose the belt at that pay-per-view. He goes on to say that Austin should not even be the champion now, and that The Undertaker is a damn fool for sending Kane back to the locker room during the main event at SummerSlam. From there, Vince decides to antagonize Taker even more, And let's just say it isn't very PC by 2017 standards. I know somewhere in this building you can hear me. And I know your retarded brother Kane, or whatever his problem is, even though he can't talk, I know he can hear me too. Whoa, come on. You two guys should strike terror in the hearts of every WWF superstar. You should dominate the World Wrestling Federation. Undertaker and Kane should terrorize the WWF. But instead, WWF superstars are, I think they're starting to snicker at your mere sight. They're not terrified any longer. Kane, you and Undertaker, probably couldn't terrorize a kindergarten. Oh, please. You know what? Kane? Yeah? What? What are they calling him? Well, he's uh, their favorite part of the anatomy. That's class all the way. 
Undertaker and Kane have been reduced to nothing more than two putrid put. What in the hell is he saying? Whoa. That's it. Two putrid put. Uh oh. Well, wait just a minute. Get out of there. And business is picking up here early. The Undertaker and Kane coming to the ring. And look at the owner of the WWF. Watch it. He's making a getaway. So Vince's promo does indeed cause The Undertaker and Kane to come after him, but the chairman escapes by hopping the barricade and running off through the crowd. And that is how our opening segment comes to a close. So William, what did you think of this promo, and did you enjoy Vince calling the Brothers of Destruction two putrid pussies? Well, the promo serves a purpose. You're like, what is he up to? What is Vince up to? Why is he happy? Because... We're kind of expecting the opposite because even though he's not such a big fan of The Undertaker, he'd rather have The Undertaker as champion than Austin. Anybody but Austin. The, I, I love it because like, I almost wonder what through, through his mind. is like, oh, I said that once. I, that didn't get over too well. Let me try it again. Two yeah. putrid pussies. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm breaking that out. So and, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I was definitely surprised. I don't remember this promo. And I guess maybe they knew they were going to be pre-taped on a Saturday. So they're like, yeah, fucking trot him out there. Have him say pussies twice on national television. It'll be censored anyway. But uh, yeah, definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting start to the evening where Vince is basically antagonizing Undertaker and Kane. And again, like you said, it is interesting seeing Vince come out with a smile on his face because he's planning on screwing, the, the, excuse me, screwing uh, Austin over. But one week prior, The Undertaker had just chokeslammed him. So it's almost like, why are you trying to, you know, it, it seems like his ultimate plan is to have The Undertaker and Kane, you know, one of them take the title off of Austin. But you would think he would dislike both of them as well, since Taker just chokeslammed the shit out of him one week prior. It's like, maybe he should put somebody new in there, but I, I don't know. Definitely very strange, but we'll see how his plan unfolds in the coming weeks, I suppose. So from there, we segue into our first match of the evening, Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman versus the Disciples of Apocalypse, who are accompanied by Paul Ellering. I would, of course, be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that Ellering is wearing a blue shirt that says, The Web Rules Y2K. So yes, that's right. In 1998, Paul Ellering took the bold stance that the internet was cool. Edgy stuff there. As DOA are making their entrance, Jim Ross speculates that The Undertaker and Kane are likely going to attempt to make Vince McMahon into a hostage in this arena tonight, and William, did you hear what Jerry Lawler's response to that was? No, I didn't write it. What was it? Okay, I will play it for you right here. Perfect. It's as if Mr. McMahon's being held hostage in his own arena here by The Undertaker and Kane. Well, well that's terrorism, JR! Pure and simple terrorism! So there you have it. According to one of the WWF's commentators, The Undertaker and Kane are terrorists. It's a good thing they can both teleport, since they probably won't be able to board any airplanes anytime soon. But anyway, getting back to the match, it may come as a bit of a surprise to see Shamrock and Blackman teaming together since last week on Raw, Blackman had attempted to calm down an irate Shamrock, which resulted in the world's most dangerous man nailing Blackman with a belly-to-belly suplex, Blackman then returned the favor and hit Shamrock with a belly-to-belly suplex of his own, but apparently they've patched up their differences this week. 
However, no sooner does the match begin than those terrorists, The Undertaker and Kane, walk down the ramp and enter the ring. DOA and Shamrock are brawling outside the ring, which leaves Steve Blackman alone with the Brothers of Destruction. He initially tries to hit Kane with a spin kick, but he moves out of the way and gives Blackman a choke slam for his troubles. From there, The Undertaker puts Blackman into a leg grapevine, which Jim Ross generously refers to as a UFC-like submission hold. <laughs> the two putrid pussies then walk back up the ramp, which causes the DOA and Ellering to flee backstage in order to avoid their wrath. Back in the ring, Shamrock checks on Blackman, who is selling a knee injury from Taker's submission hold, which makes sense because, as we now know in the present day, The Undertaker is clearly a legitimate badass because everyone in WWE is contractually obligated to say so. So anyway, William, what did you think of our opening match and the subsequent run-in? I mean, there's, you know, there's not much to it. I mean, the story here is Kanan... It's going to be a develop. It's going to be a motif of the night here. So yeah. just kind of strap in for him. So this is our first, our first uh, introduction. This is our introduction to Kane and Taker just, just destroying everybody. I know. I like how Shamrock goes like, uh, uh-uh, uh, man. I'm not getting. Uh, I'm keeping my heat. You can lose Good. yours, Blackman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Blackman's in a position where he can afford to take that. But Shamrock at this point, I don't think you want him to be squashed by Undertaker and Kane. As as impressive as it would be. Uh, I think you want to, you still want to protect Shamrock a little bit here. Uh, I will actually say, going through this podcast, Shamrock has been, I would say, a really underrated performer because you don't typically look back and think, oh yeah, Ken Shamrock, he was you know a, a good wrestler or something to that extent. But in his matches, he he does a really good job in his matches with the limited time he's been given. He always kind of finds a way to steal the show and the Lions Den match as well. You could probably give a lot of the credit to Owen Hart, but Shamrock did a really good job in the match too. So I will single out Ken Shamrock as a guy who's been kind of like a hidden gem uh, throughout the the, the length of this podcast. I'd say at least until Triple H turned face with DX, he was the number two face. Yes, absolutely. And I'll even set the, the two guys actually. One guy is Shamrock who I've singled out and the other guy would actually be Jeff Jarrett, even though he's been given shit he actually has done very well in the matches he's been given. His character is, you know, obviously hasn't been very good so far with the uh, the revival of the country singer gimmick and before that the NWA. But uh, with the time he's given in his matches, he does always a really good job. So, so Ken Shamrock and Jeff Jarrett, two of the unsung Attitude Era heroes, in my opinion, and obviously Tennessee Lee because I just love him. But but I'm the only one there. So from there, talk about an awkward segue. We immediately cut to a bathroom stall where we hear some moaning and see two pairs of feet. Clearly, the big Valboski is hard at work in more ways than one. Also, a note to the WWF cameraman, I'm pretty sure it's illegal to film someone in a public bathroom, so I assume this clip will soon be referred to as Exhibit A. And sure enough, Val Venus is in our next match, up against Vader. In his pre-match promo, Val compares himself to the family dog because he's loyal, obedient, and he always comes when he's called. Nothing sexier than comparing yourself to Rover. So shortly after the match begins, we see Dustin Runnels in the crowd holding a picket sign, which says he's coming back, and I suppose that's fitting. We've been seeing Edge in the crowd quite a bit, so why not a Christian too, huh? Yeah, right? Uh, Okay, not my best effort. So Vader ends up controlling most of the match, but then eventually Bradshaw just walks down the ramp and enters the ring. They proceed to stare each other down, but before they can get physical, The Undertaker and Kane head right back down to ringside. So Bradshaw wisely decides to get out of harm's way, but that leaves Vader and Val alone with Taker and Kane. 
Val ends up taking a choke slam from Kane, and then Vader receives a double choke slam from both brothers. So clearly, they're not very happy with Vince McMahon's comments. So, William, your thoughts on our second straight Pussies of Destruction run-in? Jerry Lawler is very confused about who he is in the He Is Coming Back poster, or sign. He, oh. he continuously asks JR, who is he? He doesn't right. know. <laughs> he's he's kind of tipping off the gimmick a little bit there. He, he sh- what he should be saying is, oh, it's, he's obviously referring to God. But- right. Exactly. It's it's so funny, man. But no, I, I mean, again, t- I thought it was funny that Bradshaw comes out first. And you're like, wait, what's Brad? Like, Brad, is this really needed, Bradshaw? <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, nope. But yeah, it's, it. you know, I mean, uh, to... Seeing Val get eaten is one thing, but to see Vader, it's just, it's like, man, this is just depressing. Like, this has got to be one of the worst things about doing this type of podcast where you see it week after week. It's like, you just see how badly Vader has slid down into just nothing. Yeah, he's been pretty much a total joke for almost the entirety of this podcast. With obviously the highlight being the the big fat piece of shit promo. Oh, that's the best. That's the <laughs> best, best part of his run. Yeah. Which is saying something that that's the best part of this entire this entire run. Hey, remember when Vader cracked us up by uh, being unintentionally hilarious and calling himself a big fat piece of shit? Yeah, that was that was the best part of his WWF run in '98. So, <laughs> I think we also get a promo coming up pretty soon with, with this uh, Bradshaw Vader promo, where Bradshaw says it's something to the extent of Vader. It's called survival of the fittest, not the fattest. Just, <laughs> Just buries him as a fat piece of shit in the promo once again. So That's great. Yeah, it's great stuff. So up next, we go backstage where Michael Cole is standing by with The Rock and Mark Henry. The Rock does all the talking and says that even though Triple H beat him at SummerSlam, The Rock will always be the people's champ. And also, as a quick side note, I think this marks the very first time that The Rock specifically refers to the people's eyebrow. So there's a bit of history for you. Up to this point, he was just kind of raising it with no name for it, but... Now we have the people's eyebrow. And after a commercial break, it is time for The Rock and Mark Henry to team up for a WWF tag team title match where they will be facing new champions, the New Age Outlaws. And these two teams actually did, uh, did end up having a pretty solid seven-minute match. Not too many noteworthy spots aside from the crowd once again popping huge for the people's elbow. Unfortunately, for the third match in a row, we got a disqualification due to outside interference. This time, instead of The Undertaker and Kane interfering, it was China who ran into the ring and impressively tackled Mark Henry as payback for last week's segment where she was held down as the world's strongest man attempted to kiss her. China mounted Henry and started punching him, but he refused to fight back, which led to some more questionable commentary from Jerry Lawler. So eventually The Rock and Mark Henry retreated, and China mocked Henry by licking her lips, much like he did to her last week. So William, what did you think of this tag team title match and China's tackle of a 400-pound man? Well, the good thing is they give this one some time. They give it a little bit of time compared to the other matches before it, it ends in its uh, its DQ. So that's good. Mm-hmm. And it was good to see, because like, um, th- they are starting to play up that the, the, the nation is not on solid ground. Mm-hmm. They're starting to play that up. 
You also hear a little bit of face pops, not much, but a little bit for the rock. It's starting like this because remember, like rock builds up a nice grand groundswell of baby face pops leading into Survivor Series. So it start it's it's around here is where it starts to kick itself up. Not fully engaged yet, but it's getting there. Of course, the the Mark Henry China stuff. We know where that's we know where that's headed. <laughs> yesterday it was Father's Day yesterday, so. We know where eventually this ends down the line, but nah, man, like it's a, it is impressive when you go back and watch these shows when you see China do stuff like this, and you're like, wow, man, that's that's impressive to see her spear a 400 pound like Olympic strongman, yeah, start she, going to town on him. She is hugely over in in the Attitude Era up to this point. I mean, she gets even more over once she starts actually competing more regularly. But yeah, up to this point, she gets big reactions every time she interferes. Um, when she was a heel, when DX were heels, when it was Hunter and uh, Shawn Michaels, she would get big reactions for mixing it up with guys behind the ref's back. And now she's kind of doing the very, a very similar sort of thing in a lot of her matches, and the crowd's actually eating it up. So it's just kind of funny to see that uh, how things sort of change a little bit for China. But, yeah, she's, she's a huge fixture and obviously is going to become even more of a fixture as the Attitude Era goes on. So, yeah, good for her that they're finally giving her a little bit more time. And obviously, you know, a couple of weeks ago she actually spoke – for the first time, which goes a long way toward uh, helping her get a little bit further over too. So, so good job, China, actually getting some promo time there. And after a commercial break, Tiger Ali Singh is standing in the ring with his manservant Babu, and I can't help but notice that this is actually a new Babu. Yes, that's right. Much like how Maggie Gyllenhaal took over for Katie Holmes in the role of Rachel Dawes, so too has this Babu taken over for uh, the other Babu. Personally, I thought the first Babu brought a much more subtle approach to the character, but but that's just me. So speaking of Babu, he's ravenously chowing down on sardines, and Tiger informs us that Babu has, in fact, eaten nothing but sardines for the past four days without brushing his teeth. And so, in order to prove that an American will do anything for money, Tiger says he will pay a woman from the crowd $500 to French kiss Babu for five seconds. Oi. So Babu then proceeds to choose a woman from the crowd who is wearing a white tank top and, quite obviously, no bra whatsoever. Fittingly, she has a tongue ring, which is quite fortunate considering this is a make-out challenge. It's almost like she was chosen beforehand or something. So anyway, she does indeed proceed to kiss Babu for much more than five seconds because Tiger claims to lose count a few times, so she has clearly earned her money. However, as soon as the challenge finishes... The Undertaker and Kane return to the ring yet again. Tiger shoves Babu over to Kane and tries to escape, but Taker grabs him before he can. Tiger and Babu both end up taking choke slams, and the Brothers of Terrorism continue to send a message to Vince McMahon. So, William, what did you think of this Tiger Ali Singh segment and yet another interruption by two seven foot freaks? I mean, the. the, the, the thing about these segments with Tiger Ali Singh is this is classic wrestling. Heel Heat 101. Like, this is this is what you would do, like, totally back during the territories. Like, y- you would do these types of segments where you're really playing up, like, especially if you're a non-American, like how stupid Americans are, and look at this, like, they'll do anything for money. It's perfect. Like, it is good heat. Like, that is one thing it's it's totally good for. It, it would help if Tiger Ali Singh actually went somewhere, really, as a wrestler for WWF, but, eh, you know, they all can't be winners. Yeah. But uh, 
I, I love once again Jerry Lawler is just confounded by this girl's tongue ring. He he doesn't un, he doesn't get it. <laughs> he yeah. does. He's like he's like what is that Jr. <laughs> Well, he, he could have just looked in uh, Gangrel's direction because he exactly. clearly has one too at this point. So it's awesome. But really. the the thing about the Taker Kane thing is like, all right, so this is now is this the third time? I think so, third or fourth. So, so like, you're, you you got to start to wonder like, all right, well, are you going to do anything different with it? Because there really hasn't been anything different. Like nobody's foiled them, mm-hmm. and you kind of get the sense that with the exception of Steve Austin, nobody is going to foil them in doing this. Yeah. And so you're just kind of waiting. Now you're just kind of waiting. All right, what's all right? If I go through my wrestling brain and I think about how they do these types of things, like logically Vince McMahon's got to come out at some point. So he hasn't come out yet. So I, maybe we're going to see this again. That's what you're left to wonder. It the repetition has already started to, to wear in at this point. Like you're starting to get a hold of it. Yeah, it's a good point because really, what exactly are is being developed from? the constant uh, interference, you know, it's like, okay, the Undertaker and Kane are dominant, but we've known that the Undertaker has been dominant for about seven and a half years now, and Kane has been completely dominant since he debuted about, what, nine months ago, ten months ago, whatever it was. So I understand they're trying to get this tandem over as a dominant force, but we kind of, we can kind of put that together for ourselves. I mean, if they had only done this once or twice throughout the night, we could have you know, it would have made a little bit more sense, maybe, but the constant interference is, is it starts to get a little bit grating for a while. And uh, and spoiler alert, folks, there's there are a few more instances of this coming up throughout the night, so so stay tuned for that. And after a commercial break, it is now time for our next match: Southern Justice versus the Headbangers. The highlight of the match for me was Jim Ross sneaking in a pot shot at the sport, which is preempting them, when he said that Sunday Night Heat would be starting one hour early tomorrow night due to, quote, the scintillating coverage of the U.S. Tennis Open. And call me crazy, but I detected a wee bit of insincerity there. Call Dude, me crazy. Jim Ross, like, all right, we didn't mention it during the uh, the Rock Triple H ladder match. Remember this Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa line? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so weird, like... He gets so defensive, like, why is anyone talking about Sammy Sosa? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, that was really then, weird. I, I and like I was trying to think of it. I was like, the like I, I was I remember the home run race, definitely. I don't remember race being a big like like criticism of it, really. Like I don't remember it. Maybe it was, I'm not for sure, but like the way Jim Ross goes in on it though, you would think that it was like a very mainstream argument or something. It's right. weird. And then he does it again, not just with that U.S. Open comment. He does another Mark McGuire line, I think, later. It's, yeah. It's bonkers, man. It is. I mean, I would say, in response to JR's question, people probably weren't talking as much about Sosa because Mark McGuire's the one who ends up breaking the record at first. So right. I think, does Sosa break the record that year, too? Yeah, they both break the yeah. record. They both get over 61. It's just that Mark McGuire does it first, and he still hits the most home runs that year. I think he hits, like, what, 70 or something? 70, yep. yep, Something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, And I don't know, maybe maybe it is what – I was trying to think about it. I was like, is he a Cubs guy? I was like, no, nah, man, he's closer probably to St. Louis than he is Chicago. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. I just I – couldn't, I couldn't figure out any of the other angles besides, like, is he getting into a race argument on this? Like, uh, I don't know, Jr. Yeah. I'm waiting for when the audio finally uh, drops, where it's Vince McMahon talking to McGuire and Sosa being like, hey, 
You, uh, you fellas know and need a doctor named Zahorian for this uh, home run chase? Oh, dude, I guarantee you at some point Vince probably tried to get one of those guys to show up for Raw. I'm <laughs> sure he did. Oh, yeah. I was, I mean, I'll admit, I was pulling more for Sosa because I was like Sammy Sosa and the Cubs, but still. He had more personality. Yeah. He, I think Sosa ended up breaking that home run. Well, he broke the 61 mark like a couple times throughout his career, but. Yeah. Yeah, and McGuire, I think, was, I don't know if he's not done, but he never really came close to 70 again, but. Again, that's that's not a huge knock because really, how could you? That's that's a lot of fucking home runs. But oh yeah, uh, I, I'm just waiting for the day when Vince McMahon is implicated as being the one who helped them uh, get the oh, correct yeah. the correct dealer. So it's gonna happen. So anywho, the finish of the match came when Mosh turned his back on Dennis Knight so that he could knock Mark Canterbury off the ring apron, but that allowed Knight to knee Mosh in the back and then hit him with the move that used to be called the slop drop. Uh, when they were the Godwins, but is now apparently called the Problem Solver. So your winners in roughly five minutes, which is four minutes too long, Southern Justice. So, William, your thoughts on this epic encounter, and more importantly, how did The Undertaker and Kane not interrupt this match? Dude, I have no clue. Like, (laughs) why this was the one that they decided to stick around, I have no idea. You know, like, I I was just... (laughs) You know, it's... At the same time, like it's like, all right, well, you've got the outlaws as champs, so we got to build somebody up as a challenger, right? We got to try and do something. So, I'm kind of glad they let this one go, just because it's, you know, it's it's by far probably the weakest division because it's like, with the we'll see too much later on, but it's like there really aren't a lot of tag teams that are that look good. So, no, we got to let these guys go at least. Yeah, at this point, it's pretty much the Outlaws and then like a collection of misfits. So I, you could say LOD, but look what they're currently doing with LOD at this point. And the Oddities, not really. Um, Southern Justice, yeah, kind of. The Headbangers have been around for a while, but obviously they aren't contenders. So, yeah, the tag division is, is pretty, pretty friggin' weak at this moment. So I guess that's the, the Southern, I almost called them the Godwins. Southern Justice are, are one of the best they have at the moment, which is really, really saying something. So after that match concludes, we see The Undertaker and Kane backstage walking up to a door which says Mr. McMahon. Frankly, I'm not sure why they didn't go there in the first place instead of interrupting all those matches. But It's a good question. Like, what are they doing in between, like, going into the ring? Like, what are they doing otherwise? And then all of a sudden they're like, ah, hey, hit our music. All right, we're going back out there. Oh, no, no, wait, they don't hit the music. All right, we're going back out. It is just a question of, like, what is your plan? Yeah. What exactly is the end game here? So, yeah, Taker bangs on the door, but no one answers, so Kane then smashes it down with what is presumably the same sledgehammer he used to crush Mankind's skull at SummerSlam, like Season 4, Episode 8 of Game of Thrones. Unfortunately for them, it appears that the chairman is not around. And so, after a commercial break, it's now time for a European title match, champion D'Lo Brown versus challenger X-Pac. So one quick note of historical importance, William. When D'Lo makes his entrance, Jim Ross refers to The Undertaker and Kane as the Brothers of Destruction for what I assume is the first time. So yeah, they're really trying to get that nickname over right off the bat, and uh, I would say it's stuck. So also before the match begins, we get bonus footage from SummerSlam, where X-Pac, the Headbangers, Darren Drozdov, and Howard Finkel apparently must have ambushed Double J backstage because they then proceeded to finish the job and shave Jarrett's head with an electric razor that actually worked this time. So clearly, that's the payoff you want for a hair versus hair match, having the results shown six days after the match itself. But anyway, let's get into the D'Lo Brown X-Pac European title match. 
Truthfully, there wasn't a whole lot to cover since it only went for about three minutes, although I will point out the painful-looking spot where X-Pac went for the Bronco Buster, but D'Lo stuck his foot up as Pac jumped toward him, resulting in a swift mid-air dick kick, and that did, <laughs> did, not, did not look fun at all. And the finish of the match came when X-Pac hit D'Lo with the X-Factor, and it was obvious that referee Earl Hebner was counting very slowly. Terribly. Yeah. Terribly slow. Because he was waiting for Jeff Jarrett to make his way down to the ring and break up the pinfall, which he did indeed do. And yes, folks, we get a historic moment here because this is the very first time we see Jeff Jarrett with short hair. And clearly this is why you don't want to lose a hair versus hair match because it's now 2017 and Double J still has not been able to regrow his flowing blonde locks since X-Pac shaved them off. Damn shame. So anywho, for those of you scoring at home, the fact that Jarrett ran in and broke up that pinfall means that four of our first five matches on this night have now ended in a disqualification or no contest due to outside interference. Such clever booking. Jarrett and X-Pac then proceed to brawl through the crowd as D'Lo stands in the ring and celebrates the fact that he is still the European champion. Unfortunately for him, that celebration would be short-lived as, stop me if you've heard this before, The Undertaker and Kane make their way to the ring. They start walking toward D'Lo and they have him cornered, but surprisingly, The Rock runs into the ring and steps between them. And amusingly, we can clearly see Rock mouth the words, fuck you to The Undertaker. And oh, then yes. He throws, yeah, and then he throws a towel <laughs> at Kane, which results in the newly crowned Brothers of Destruction attacking him. However, instead of coming to the rescue of the leader of the nation, D'Lo grabs his European title and runs away. Both men beat on the rock for a bit, culminating in Kane delivering a chokeslam to him as D'Lo looks on from the ramp, too afraid to intervene. Taker and Kane then head backstage once again as the people's champ is left lying on his back, and it appears that, for the first time under Rock's leadership, someone in the nation does not know their role. So, William, what did you think of this European title match and The Rock suddenly showing a little bit of bravery instead of his usual heelish cowardice? This feud between X-Pac and D'Lo Brown is going to be an unexpected gem of the fall season. Definitely. Because their feud over the European title produces, I think, at least a couple really good, if not raw, then pay-per-view matches. And it, it really does help drive this, this belt going through the end of 98. So this is a really, really good start to it. I'm glad, like, this is where I'm glad, this is where I think DQ's works. It's like, don't give me the whole thing yet. I don't want to see all of it yet. Like, I'm glad they, you know, they, they cut it off with Jared doing the run-in, and then, you know, the Jared, obviously they're going to continue on the Jared X-Pac stuff first before they go full into X-Pac and D-Lo, but that's fine. The Rock thing is fascinating because it's like, you know that's coming off the coattails of SummerSlam where they're like, all right, we know what we want to do for November. Let's uh, let we saw what happened last night in the garden. Let's take this thing out for a spin. Let's let the rock kind of do these things, and let's see if organically this thing can shift. And it's starting to more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very interesting stuff. It's it's one of those things in wrestling where it's it's a very abrupt change for the character when they want to go from heel to face where it's like this guy was you know cowardly pussy for you know all these this past year you know backing down from challenges backing down from dx and now it's like he's getting in the face of the two 
biggest badass monsters in the company. So only one night removed from you know losing his title. So it's one of those things that's really abrupt, but at the same time really helps you know sway the fans in his direction to be like, oh, The Rock's finally showing a little bit of bravery now. He's actually you know standing up to these guys who were just killing everybody. So definitely goes a long way. And and in the coming uh, weeks, we're gonna see. Uh, exactly how much of a, a shift he makes. So I'm really looking forward to that, as you said, culminating in uh, in November at the Survivor Series. And our next match was Edge versus Marvelous Mark Merrow, who is accompanied to the ring by Jacqueline. So once again, Edge enters through the crowd, which in retrospect I think is a very nice touch for his mysterious loner character they were initially trying to get over for him. I approve. I thought it was a pretty, pretty clever way of making him stand out. So we also have the commentators taking another pot shot, as Jim Ross again mentioned that Sunday Night Heat will start at a special time tomorrow due to the U.S. Open, to which Lawler mockingly replied, Ooh, exciting! I'm sure the USA Network just loved the WWF openly burying programming which airs on the same channel. I feel like it would never fly these days if Michael Cole would say, Mr. Robot airs this Wednesday, but who gives a shit about some boring computer nerd skill? (laughs) That'll put some butts in the seats. (laughs) Yeah. Some guy in a hoodie, yeah, real exciting. So the Edge versus Marrow match ends up lasting for barely more than a minute, and I'll give you one guess as to how it concluded. If you said disqualification due to outside interference, give yourself a Barry Horowitz-style pat on the back. So Edge impressively leapt over the top rope and hit a crossbody to Marrow on the floor, but as soon as he did that, Gangrel ran out from backstage and started attacking him. Edge and Gangrel then brawled with each other for a while, so Mero decided to head backstage. However, as soon as he got to the top of the ramp, shockingly, The Undertaker and Kane showed up. Taker hit Mero with a single clothesline, and both brothers started putting the boots to him. Wisely, Jacqueline decided not to intervene, so she just kind of stayed off to the side. And interestingly, even though Edge and Gangrel were still fighting in the ring, Taker and Kane decided not to head down there and beat the crap out of them as well, so clearly not even two undead zombies would want to fuck with a vampire. So William, what did you think of this very brief match and the 184th Taker and Kane appearance of the night? Eh, not much to it. I know we're fur- we're also furthering along Edge and Gangrel, whatever their storyline's going to be, so... I guess in that way, it, it, it kind of served its purpose. But other than that, not much to it. Yeah, not not much here at all. The only thing I'll say is that the Edge Gangrel quote-unquote rivalry that's been going on so far, Jim Ross has been hinting that there's a past between the two of them. And I actually don't recall what that ends up being. I don't know if they ever actually explain it. Obviously, I know that this ultimately uh, is going to lead to a new wrestler coming on the scene. But that, that'll be, I think, a, a month or so away. But, uh, yeah, I, I really don't remember how they pay this off where they're saying, like, oh, Edge and Gangrel, they must know each other. So who knows? But I guess we'll see how that plays out as well. So we then cut to pre-taped footage of what Jim Ross says is part one of a two-part interview he conducted with Al Snow and Head. Surprisingly, we actually get footage of Al Snow in ECW on WWF television while ECW was still in existence. So that was fun to see. This interview segment lasts about five minutes, which means they could have fit in five matches during this time frame instead. 
So the interview consists of Jim Ross asking Al if Head is controlling him and what he would say to Vince McMahon if he could get a meeting with him. Personally, I was just looking for an explanation as to why he's somehow back with the company when he lost his match at King of the Ring, where the stipulation clearly stated that he was gone from the WWF if he didn't win. But again, consistency is not exactly their strong suit at this point. So, William, what did you think of this interview segment? And since you are currently covering ECW pay-per-views on the New Blood Rising podcast, can you give me a reason why I should like Al Snow because I'm already tired of his shtick? Well, like, the thing is, like, when, when we came into it, like, we got to see, like, the shift of Al Snow because he... Forget what I'm forgetting the shows. This is back like in '98, in though. Um, you see him come out like in his Leaf Cassidy gear, yeah, and he wrestles like a kind of a standard match. But then, like within like the next one or two shows, you know, they've got this whole thing going with him and Head. They've got like the camera doing like they're using the camera as a way to further the story because the camera will like be upside down, the frame will be upside down, and they're shifting in and out like a focus going in, pushing in hard, coming out hard, everything like that. When it comes to the just the camera itself, like dollying in and out, it's wild. Like and then to cap it all off, like the big image was everyone in the crowd have the the styrofoam heads, mm-hmm. you know, like that was the big image, and it was. I, it's unbelievable how over it was when you think about it. Because when you think, I think Alice, I first think of the WWF stuff because that's what I watched first. But then, like, watching here in ECW, it's like, my God, this is over. Huge. Yeah. And the thing was, like, there probably, I don't know how much mileage, like, there was going to be for him in ECW. You probably made the right call jumping over to, you know, WWE just to pick up a few extra bucks, probably a bit more of a, a steadier check and everything. But. Dude, I mean, from what we saw in there, like that, what you're seeing here isn't that much different from the ECW one, to be honest. Mm. It's just one of those things that it connected very well with an ECW crowd because this is one of their type of wrestlers, you know. Like he's kind, of, he's an outsider, you know. He's kind of a, he's a different type of dude. He's nuts. He's crazy. And on top of that, like he's a pretty damn good wrestler. This interview segment though is 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 crazy to me because it's like. This feels like something for a much bigger wrestler, not yeah. just Al Snow or something. You know, right? It's like the a Jim Ross sit down is something you usually reserve for when they were giving the backstory to Mick Foley or to the brief period in '97 where they did a sit down with Dustin Runnels where he was explaining the Goldust character and being the son of Dusty Rhodes and blah blah blah. Those are pretty much the examples we have before this, but this is more of like a comedy piece where he's talking to Head. And he's, you know, arguing with Head while he's talking to Jim Ross. So, yeah, I agree it was kind of a strange uh, strange sort of dichotomy there. And I, didn't Al Snow main event a pay-per-view in ECW, too? Yep, him against I, Shane Douglas. It's, a, oh. it's, a, it's, it's crazy because, like, by the end of it, like, they've got, like, they've got Shane on their shoulders and Al Snow's giving him kind of a handshake. And it's like, whoa, here we go. We're breaking kayfabe for real here. The other big one is the... The pay-per-view where Lance Storm needed a mystery partner. And you could pretty much tell by once the styrofoam head showed up, you're like, it's going to be Al Snow. Yeah. Al Snow is going to be the mystery partner. Those are the two big uh, Al Snow appearances. Well, if they're, if they're handing out the styrofoam heads, I would think that would be a bit of a tip-off as to who the mystery partner would be. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Tipping their hands a little bit. Tipping their heads, maybe. So now, if you're watching this episode of Raw on the WWE Network, when we come back from commercial break, the oddities are already in the ring along with... An intoxicated hawk who is continuing to wear his motorcycle helmet to cover his face. 
What actually happened on the initial broadcast is that the Insane Clown Posse once again joined the oddities and rapped their theme song on the way to the ring, and Hawk was so shit-faced that he was actually dancing along with the oddities. And at this point, Jim Ross basically spelled out the frustrations of all wrestling fans in what, to me, sounded like his legitimate frustration with the angle. Man, how the mighty have fallen. The mighty road warriors. Half of them relegated to the Hawk in his condition. So, okay, the match is supposed to be a six-man tag match. Kurgan, Golga, and Giant Silva versus Hawk, Animal, and Darren Drozdov. At the start of the match, Drunk Hawk actually goes over to the Insane Clown Posse and tries to get them to dance with him, but they turn him down because the match is underway. So Hawk responds by throwing Violent J into the steel steps and press-slamming Shaggy 2-Dope. Ladies and gentlemen, ICP are taking bumps for yet another industry which hates them. Hawk then goes back onto the apron, and when Draws reaches to tag Animal, Hawk intercepts and essentially tags himself into the match. At one point, Golga goes for a leg drop, but Hawk moves out of the way. Unfortunately, because he's so wasted, Hawk goes to the wrong corner and tries to tag Kurgan instead. So Kurgan comes into the ring and hits him with a big boot. This results in a schmoz between the two teams, which leaves Hawk alone in the ring with Giant Silva, so Silva hits Hawk with a shitty, dangerous-looking powerbomb and then pins him, even though Silva was obviously not the legal man in this match. And yes, this means that on consecutive nights, the Legion of Doom took pinfall losses to Scott Taylor and Giant Silva. Ouch. At this point, if you're watching on the WWE Network, the footage immediately cuts out, and we go to the next segment because they don't want to pay ICP any more royalties. One fun tidbit that you miss out on is the fact that Hawk remains in the ring and once again starts dancing with the oddities because he's clearly one of them fun-loving alcoholics. So, William, <laughs> William, what did you think of this match, and what are your thoughts overall on this drunk Hawk angle that is still continuing? Um, one word. I just have one. I, when I rate comments... After that, I have one word, sad. This yes. Is, this is just sad. It's just sad to watch, you know, from beginning to end, this whole, like, just downward spiral of the Legion of Doom and Hawk. And Hawk, you know, I mean, you you talked about it, you know, like him, like why he would do this, why on earth he would want to do something like this. It's just painful to watch. Like, I mean... When you go back and th- like go back in time, these this is probably one of the most over tag teams of all time, Definitely. without question. No matter which, no matter which, uh, you know, federation or whatever they were in, wherever they were at, they were the number one tag team. Like everyone loved them, and this is how we're gonna phase them out is by is by doing this type of angle. It's terrible, man. Yeah, I mean, we still have the term. You know, in, in the wrestling lexicon, they still have the term road warrior pop because the guys were so fucking over. And it's kind of like, well, we don't, they're old now. We don't have anything to do with them. So pretty we're soon, Henry, that. you're going to, you're going to have a road warrior flop soon, <laughs> and it's not going to be pretty. A road warrior drop. Yes. Nailed it. That's a, it. From a Can very it. high height. Yeah. It, it's, I don't even know. And I think the more perplexing thing, too, is this angle is obviously a bit of a disaster. And yet we're only, I think, a week or two away from over on Nitro, the infamous last call Scott Hall angle, 
where oh, they play up. No. Yeah, so where we literally have two simultaneous angles going on on both wrestling shows where you have people with real-life substance abuse issues and they have to play that out on camera in their characters. It's completely baffling to me that, that, that I guess WCW was looking at the drunk hawk angle and being like, I think we could, I think we could get away with this one too. We could, we could really do something here. So really just terrible, terrible uh, foresight or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Just a, a horrendous idea on, uh, on both sides. So yeah, bad stuff. So after a commercial break, we cut backstage again, where The Undertaker and Kane beat up a random, unsuspecting stagehand because, obviously, they just haven't had enough camera time yet tonight. At this point, I'm starting to think that all this carnage may be just a slight overreaction on their parts. I mean, they're essentially attacking random people solely because Vince McMahon called them pussies. I mean, fellas, sometimes you just need to learn to let some things go. Just let it go. We then segue into our next match, Too Much versus Los Bariquas members Jesus Castillo and Miguel Perez. And my first question here would be, instead of Raw Saturday Night, did we suddenly stumble into an episode of Shotgun Saturday Night, by mistake? <laughs> and then my second question would be, did you happen to get a look at Jesus Castillo's outfit? It is pretty much my only note, besides, <laughs> besides the fact that Scott Taylor, gets, he's getting close to where he needs to be in the Attitude Era. Mm-hmm. He's getting close, you can tell, by some of the things he does in this match. But, hey, Zeus, no, que bueno. No, 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 no. Man, that outfit, those are some dad jeans. Dad jeans right there, my friend. Those are, yeah. man, mega dad jeans there. He, he gets worked in this match. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, yellow-tinted sunglasses and, and atrociously ugly dad jeans. Good, what a travesty. Yeah. Oh, actually, William, do you know what the difference is between Jesus Castillo's jeans and Hawk from LOD 2000? I don't. So the jeans are high-waisted, whereas Hawk is high and wasted. So, yeah. <laughs> Just don't confuse the two. That's all I'm saying. So, so for those scoring at home... I believe this is the first match where Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor begin to insinuate that they are closer than tag team partners as they end up hugging each other several times during the match. And I have a vague recollection that this gets ramped up further in the coming months. So God help us when the WWF starts giving the homophobic fans an excuse to get riled up. And the finish of the match came when Los Bariquas hit Scott Taylor with a double power bomb, and Miguel went to pin him. However, instead of counting the pinfall, referee Jimmy Corderas told Jesus to leave the ring, which gave Brian Christopher the opportunity to come off the top turnbuckle and hit Miguel with a top rope leg drop. Taylor pinned Miguel, Corderas turned back around, and that was good enough for the three count, which Jim Ross amusingly sandbagged by saying that Corderas was, quote, not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So, William, what did you think of this match? And again, I must ask, how did The Undertaker and Kane not interrupt this jobber parade? Uh, my comments, I honestly put, kind of waited for Taker and Kane to show up. Yeah, absolutely. Because, <laughs> yeah, this thing just, the crowd is n- not into this Don't give a at shit. All. When no. I saw this match, I just assumed, like, when the match began, I was like, oh, yeah, this is obviously just an excuse for Taker and Kane to come out and squash all four of these guys. But right. no, they, they actually had a fucking match, and there was no interference whatsoever. So I think too great. much as a tag team is, is good. Like I think that they, they as a good pairing that they made when they put those guys together. Without Definitely. question. 
it's just a matter of like what are you going to have them do and so you know is it's it's good to see them get a win if they're going to they're going to push them cuz man they're matching tights and everything like it looks good it's a good look for them so again good to see them get the win with it but uh damn this match i mean just unfortunately when the guys across for them are any Los Bariquas that aren't um, Savio Vega, that's it's no good. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. But yeah, I, I still don't. I think it's probably at least a year away before too too much transitions into too cool. So they've got uh, quite a road ahead of them. So I don't remember if they're if they actually end up being featured very often on TV. I, I feel like they don't. But um, yeah, we'll we'll see how it plays out. But uh, obviously, once they become too cool, that's when they kind of you know, skyrocket, which is uh, which is definitely interesting to see because at this point they're just basically you know, barely being used. But they're kind of bumping them up a little bit. They're kind of giving them a little bit more usage in the weeks as they go on. I mean, we just saw them beat the Legion of Doom on Sunday Night Heat the night prior. Now they're beating Los Periquas. So they're getting a little mini push here too much. So good for them, I suppose. And now it is time for your main event of the evening, Short Hair Jeff Jarrett versus Scorpio and yes, I repeat, this is actually somehow the main event. At this point in time, they're really trying to get over don't piss me off as a catchphrase for Double J because not only does he have that phrase on his shirt, but he also cuts a pre-match promo where he tells Scorpio to not even look at him because that would be enough to piss him off. And frankly, I think that he may just have anger issues at this point, and he should be blaming himself as opposed to others. So Jarrett and Scorpio then proceed to have an all-right match, but... I know this is going to shock you. Instead of a decisive finish, we got yet another run-in. This time, it was X-Pac running into the ring and going after Jarrett, which resulted in the referee disqualifying Scorpio. I mean, really, Scorpio couldn't have jobbed cleanly there. I suppose you really have to protect a guy who hasn't won a single meaningful match since he came to the company. So Jarrett and X-Pac proceed to brawl through the crowd, and once they leave, yes, you guessed it, The Undertaker and Kane make their way to the ring. Like a complete dumbass, Scorpio just stands in one of the corners instead of running the fuck out of there, so Taker and Kane then team up for the incredibly dangerous-looking Spike Tombstone. Meanwhile, Vince McMahon is now standing at the top of the ramp smiling as it appears that his evil plan is beginning to take shape, whatever it may be. However, the Brothers of Destruction are presumably still unhappy about being called pussies, so they walk up the ramp and give chase, and that is how we go off the air. So, William, what did you think of the Jarrett-Scorpio match and the finale of the show? Uh, the match is all right. Like, I mean, again, these are two these are two solid workers, you know, for the most part. Again, like, as you said, like, this is your main event, are you kidding me? And it's like, well, <laughs> look who's not on the show, and that answer's kind of your question there a little bit maybe but in terms of that like you knew i think even more so than kane and undertaker running in you're just kind of waiting for x-pac to show up right because that just kind of seemed like that needed to happen to kind of balance out what had happened earlier so you know it's it's hard to say anything more than i don't really have a lot of i think this is the match where jim ross gets salty again about mark mcguire mentions (laughs) i think this is the moment he does but um, but it is good to see Jeff Jarrett turning into more of the mayhem Jeff Jarrett that we know later. There you go. And yeah, again, on my end, not not a whole lot to say here. Stars of the show are obviously Taker and Kane for, for good or for bad, but we can cover that a little bit more. On that note, though, I want to take it to 
the wrap up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they clucking. The WWF fans for women where we fucking. The ratings recap. So going into this week, WCW was actually on a three-week winning streak in the ratings, and obviously it's not much of a fair comparison this time around since Nitro aired in its regular Monday time slot, while Raw aired on a Saturday at 11 o'clock p.m. In fact, this Saturday episode of Raw only achieved a 2.6 rating, which is the lowest rating for the show since November 3rd, 1997, which, by the way, was the final episode of Raw Bret Hart would appear on before the Montreal Screwjob. However, William, on the other hand, this was a historic night for WCW because this episode of Nitro ends up achieving the highest rating in the history of the show, a whopping 6.02 rating. That is pretty goddamn massive. I think it's fair to assume there are a lot of WWF fans who wanted to watch wrestling the night after SummerSlam, but only WCW had a show that night, so they gravitated over there instead. And here is what you could have been watching over on the highest-rated Nitro of all time. Wrath defeated Jim Powers. Scott Norton defeated Norman Smiley. Brian Adams defeated Eddie Guerrero. Ernest Cat Miller defeated Scotty Riggs. Conan defeated Marty Jannetty. That's right, Marty Jannetty was on the most-watched Nitro of all time. Perry Saturn and Lodi defeated High Voltage. Juventud Guerrera defeated Evan Courageous. Chris Jericho defeated Disco Inferno. Goldberg defeated Al Green, presumably not the <laughs> R&B, not the R&B singer, uh, to retain his World Heavyweight Championship. And in your main event... Sting and Lex Luger defeated the team of Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Bret the Hitman Hart. So, William, does that sound like a show you would have wanted to have watched instead of Raw? A main event? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Because, I mean, that, that when you hear that, you're like, are you serious? That That's your main event? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And there was no warrior, n- nothing with a warrior this time? There was. He showed up. I think he did um, like a little bit of an interruption of a, okay. a Hogan a Hogan promo at the top of the show, but it was like a, a, a warrior voiceover, I think. As and, hokey as it is, po- like in retrospective, like, man, that was, that really was something you tuned in for just to see what are they doing with this? Absolutely. Like, yeah. So I, to answer your question, like, I mean, a lot of those matches, it was like, yeah, it was just a wrestler versus jobber, you know, it was, it was kind of the, it seemed like who they were kind of doing a lot of the pair ups with, but yeah, I think overall I would have liked that show a lot. I would have watched it. Yeah, I think the main event too. When I saw Hogan and Bret Hart teaming up together, I was like, "Oh, it's like the old WrestleMania Nine, uh, the sort of uh, story of them butting heads at WrestleMania Nine, you know, where Bret loses the title and then Hogan wins it from Yokozuna twenty seconds later, whatever the hell it was." So. I'll go win the title for you, brother. Yeah, yeah, Bret Hart <laughs> pointing pointing into the ring like, "Go, go after him, go after him." It's like, oh God. So, yeah, that, that pretty much would be the part I would want to see as well. Uh, the other matches, uh, probably not. Uh, probably right. not. Unless it yeah. actually was Goldberg defeating R&B singer Al Green. <laughs> Still awesome to think of it. Yeah. No, that's not it. Al Green. Yeah. Let's, let's not stay together. So. <laughs> 
So let's take it on that note to the raw synopsis. Now, here's a quick final tally for you, William. Of the nine matches on this episode of Raw, six of them ended in a no contest or a disqualification. Also, if you count backstage segments, The Undertaker and Kane appeared a total of nine times on this two-hour broadcast. Nine times. Nine times. And really, in terms of TV time, that's probably only an hour and a half of TV time. So yeah, nine times on a, what, 90-minute show. So basically, once every 10 minutes, we saw The Undertaker and Kane. Yeesh. And additionally, this show did not feature Triple H at all one night after he won the Intercontinental title in a classic ladder match. And even more strangely, there was no Steve Austin. Now, of course, you could say Austin was concussed last night, so they kept him off TV. But they used him for the Sunday night heat, Sunday night heat taping that very same night. So I never would have guessed that Raw would not feature Stone Cold at all the night after SummerSlam, but I suppose you could assume they weren't making their best effort since they knew the show would be on a Saturday night. You nailed either it. Way, That's a, you nailed yeah. it. That's exactly it, I think. Yeah. Very, either way, it was, it was pretty disappointing for me not to see Stone Cold. But anyway, William, what were your thoughts overall on Raw Saturday night? Um, all right, so this is where I, I was trying to reason with this because like, the thing I think – I know on your show, I think you've fallen into, and I know we've fallen into this. When we have to watch all these shows like in consecutive order like this in a way that is it's not the way we would normally digest it back when we first watched it possibly, we really see the repetitiveness mm-hmm. of things, the way things are booked. I mean, granted, like it's pro wrestling. Like they're really in the end, when you break it down, there aren't that many ways things can be booked in pro wrestling. True. You just hope that you know they, they you know you just hope that you put enough as Steve also put enough salt and pepper on that steak it'll make it go. <laughs> but in terms of this episode, like I know, like it's it wears on everyone the fact that Taker and Kane are out this much. But look at the like we're just this is our first episode kicking off towards our next pay per view, so we've got some time. How do we start this thing off? The let's let's turn Taker and Kane loose and let's start building the heat building the next obstacle for Austin. It's like how can he possibly beat both of these guys? Now granted Vince never said what the main event was. He hasn't right. said what it is yet, so that's he just said that he's got a master plan and somehow it involves both of these guys being really, really angry and killing everybody in sight. So now like it builds anticipation though because it's like, well, what's the answer going to be to this? What's the answer now? What is Steve Austin going to do to combat this? And the the bummer is, of course, is what you said. Because this went on Saturday night, this thing may have been booked differently. This thing may have been a lot different where we may have seen had a Steve Austin appearance. We may have even had a Triple H appearance. But I guarantee you just by... What you said, because of that preempting that made it so it wouldn't show up till Saturday night, they're like, F it, we'll just do a layup here. We'll just yeah. do a layup show. And the thing is, like, they're, for the most part, as weird as Vince Russo's booking is, like, a lot of it, I'd say, like, I'm like I can't say a lot of it. For the most part, it comes together and it makes sense. Like, we watch at SummerSlam, and how many Raws were just befuddling leading up to that sometimes? <laughs> How many? It was a lot, wasn't it? Like there yes. was more, or at least more than a few. And in the end, like it, it somehow does make sense. Now, still, this is a weird lull period. Like I know for me as a fan, this was a lull period because you could tell like they're kind of they're kind of easing off the gas. We gotta 
Give it some time. We know we got these monthly pay-per-views. We've got Breakdown. We have Judgment Day. But you know what? Like the big one we got to be working towards is Survivor Series. So I think it's an, it's it's interesting what they're trying to do here with it. Was it the best execution? Could they have tried to find a way to break it up better? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was funny because listening um, to Jim Ross doing commentary, he hyped up a couple times. Like, tomorrow on Heat, Stone Cold's going to be there, and The Undertaker and Kane are going to team up for the very first time. And I was thinking, damn, Sunday Night Heat sounds like it actually might have been better than Raw. (laughs) And also, there's a a fun trivia note for you that uh, the Brothers of Destruction had their first match on Sunday Night Heat, of all things. So mark that one down in your your history books against Animal and Draws, I believe. But, uh, yeah, this match, I mean, this, uh, this show... You know, if I had to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down, I'd definitely give it a thumbs down. But, I mean, there was still some entertaining stuff in there, specifically that Vince promo, which just kind of oh, came out yeah. of left field. Yeah. Um, putrid pussies. It's like, wow. I, I wish that the whole feud just ends up being Vince coming out every week and calling them a different name to further piss them off. But uh, I don't think that's how it plays out. But I'd love it if Vince just came out next week being like, Undertaker and Kane, a couple of dickheads. <laughs> <laughs> Just every single week, pissing them off more and more. So, I'm, frankly, I'm surprised that's not the route Vince Russo chose to go. You know, knowing his history. But yeah, overall, I didn't enjoy the the show too much because it was missing a lot of star power aside from Undertaker and Kane. But um, but I hate to end on a negative note, so I'll just say that SummerSlam '98 was fucking awesome. Definitely. That's, a, that's how I'll wrap it up. If you have to watch one of these two shows, watch SummerSlam 1998 because it was goddamn. Fantastic, and specifically that ladder match because again, highest possible recommendation for that. It's The Rock, it's Triple H, it's a fucking maddening—not maddening, but it's a—it's a madhouse crowd that just absolutely loved it. So go go watch that show by all means. And uh, any, anything else you'd like to add to uh, SummerSlam or Raw Saturday? Nah, man, I don't think so. I just I know this period for you is going to be really interesting. I'm curious to see how you think these shows run really between SummerSlam and Survivor Series because these are two shows where it's like or these two pay-per-views and the shows that center them it's like what are we doing we're trying to figure out what our footing is as we're gearing up towards another big pay-per-view yeah I think I'm not 100% sure but I know there's definitely some sorts of destruction of property coming up that's that's mainly what I remember from this time period where I think Vince McMahon's car gets destroyed. I yes. think there's a Zamboni in this time yes. frame. I am positive there's a hospital visit with the debut of a certain sock. Yes. Um, oh yeah. So so there's definitely some good stuff coming up. That's that's my that's mainly what I remember from this sort of interim period between SummerSlam and Survivor Series. So yeah, fun times, fun times ahead. And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. And as always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And it wasn't a five-star review, but somebody on Twitter did send me a tweet uh, just a little while ago. I think it was at Stakely. I'll give him a quick shout-out. He was saying that he was listening to the New Blood Rising podcast, and you had mentioned 
this podcast on that show, so he specifically started listening to the Raw Attitude podcast thanks to the New Blood Rising podcast. So I owe you a bit of uh, of gratitude there, more than a bit, because you guys were, were early advocates for this show way back when, when I just started. So as always, I have to give a tip of the cap to the New Blood Rising podcast for, for helping me out very early on in my run. So. No problem, man. Oh, no, it's greatness needs to be rewarded. There you go. Well, actually, on that note of greatness, before we depart, would you like to remind the fans where they can catch you outside of this fine podcast as well? Yeah, on Twitter, at New Blood Pod. Um, definitely on Facebook, New Blood Rising Podcast. If you want to see some one of our videos, we only have one up there. We did an, an ECW video. It's uh, We are Vimeo.com slash New Blood Pod. Love it. Love it. Set, of course, to a song by the band Extreme, naturally. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that song, uh, Wholehearted. That's a, a good quality. Uh, oh, yeah. Early 90s hair band ballad there. But I know you guys do more than words. Obviously, that's cla- that's that's classic Extreme right there. That's what most people think. <laughs> Good stuff. So before we go, as is the tradition, whenever a guest host joins the Raw Attitude podcast, I must ask the same question. Do you have a clip that you would like me to play at the end of this show? If not, I'll play a clip of my own, which will probably be Stone Cold Steve Austin discussing what went wrong during his match with The Undertaker at SummerSlam. All right, so you talked about during uh, SummerSlam, you know, when X-Pac got, when X-Pac took the, took the dick kick. You know, yeah. the, so... Uh, it, it, I know it was when X-Pac was on Steve Austin's podcast. He may have talked about somewhere else where he talks about where he actually ripped his ass open doing, oh, God. doing a Bronco Buster. Yes, I, I know this story. <laughs> well, that's a fun way to go out. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> oh, man. that Yeah, that I, I can't even imagine. Wow, how is that I, even possible? I, I don't know. I oh. don't know. But I'll do my best to try to find that clip for you. And uh, <laughs> so once again, huge thank you to William for joining the show. Hopefully we can get you on for a third time at some point, perhaps. Oh, yeah, man. Excellent. So enjoy those clips, and I will catch you next time. Yeah, hey, me and Taker got to talk to Undertaker. Yeah. They kind of talked about this little thing where, you know, maybe I'll get on the announce table and lay there. And you'll get on top of the cage and drop a leg. Oh, no, top turnbuckle, because we're in the cage, top turnbuckle. And drop a leg on me. From, yeah, from the top turnbuckle to the nasty. To the nasty. Yeah, so that's a bit. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit. Yeah. It's a big bit, especially yeah. when it's just a leg drop and the way you're landing. Yep. They're different from, you know, a belly splash. Mm-hmm. And so, man, I said, oh, okay, yeah, we'll do it. And so, but here's the thing during the match, the, the only time I'd ever been knocked out in my life, oh, I had bent down to give him a backdrop. And he kicked me. Well, he was going to kick me. But, uh, no, he bent down for a backdrop, and I kicked him in the chest. And when it straightened him up, got you in the chin. he got me yeah, under the yeah, chin. Yeah. You can watch it back. And so I got knocked out. He flashed me. You know, I, I was there for a second, and Earl Hebner, one of my favorite referees of all time, yeah. he goes down, he looks down at me, and there's 20,000 people in the garden. We're on a pay-per-view. It's SummerSlam. It's highway to hell. He goes, God damn, boy, you all right? <laughs> I, I said, where am I? He, he said, God damn, boy, you in the garden. <laughs> True story. I said, yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> I don't yeah. remember the rest of the match, yeah, yeah. but I do remember do laying there. Yeah, yeah. I remember laying there on that damn announce table because we were yeah. going ahead with that. That's the only thing I remembered. Yeah. And I was like, man, shit, it's going to be good. And all of a sudden, I see, when you see a guy that's 6'10", 300, and he's on the top turnbuckle, he's going to come down. I was like, 
He's coming. <laughs> so man, I just kind of just yeah. you just you just give yourself up because you yeah. trust you him. And, trust and, him. And, yeah. and if you're gonna trust you a guy it, yeah. to do that to you, yeah. you can you can pick no better guy to do it to you than the Undertaker because he's gonna yeah. take care of your ass. But you had had some hellacious problems a few months ago, a couple of years back. Yep. And in, uh, just in, in passing, you said, well, you, you know, I tore my asshole, right? And when you said that, I was like, well, shit. I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I should ask him how he tore his asshole. But yeah. maybe I should not ask him how he tore his asshole. Maybe he doesn't want to tell me how he tore his asshole. Maybe it was a bad accident on a porn shoot. I don't know. But nonetheless, <laughs> I had to ask, dude, how did you tear your asshole? <laughs> Uh, it was actually another guy because we were in like a, a four-way tornado match. Oh, Jesus, not a four-way tornado guy. match. He moves out of the way. I come in way too horizontally instead of at a 45-degree angle, and the turnbuckle ripped my asshole. So what happens when your asshole hit the turnbuckle? Did you say, man, something's wrong here? I immediate, well, something similar happened like a couple years prior to that, and I had 13 stitches, to, so my cut my ass back together but this time it actually tore through to my anus so when i hit you can see uh, if you look at the footage it doesn't look like a huge deal but you can see me immediately grab my ass and go i tore my asshole again <laughs> and and as soon as i said that the guy that moved out of the way just walloped me with a chair right in the back <laughs> thanks so here's the thing Moving forward in your uh, <laughs> wrestling career, you still going to continue to hit that Bronco Buster? You damn right. But damn not right. That's, an, part of, that's part of the price of admission. 